0: Hello and welcome to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast. My name is Stephen Hill. I am the host and my co-host is waggling a definitive version of one of the two albums, or both of the albums that we're going to be talking about today. Um,
1: it's Renfrey Deadman. Renfrey, how are you? Hello, hello. You I'm right, just mate? trying to. Sh- I'm just trying to show off that I buy music, which means I'm mm. a good person. And all I, of you who don't buy music are terrible people. I've got, I mean, it, this is audio. None of them could see if I hadn't <laughs> brought it up,
0: would have meant literally meant nothing at all. Um, but you played but, hey, right. In,
1: you played right into my hands. I
0: did. Yeah, I've got both of those. Um, by the I, way. I actually,
1: I actually only have the deluxe edition of one of these records. I don't have the deluxe edition of the other record because as we will get into, I like one of these records a lot more than the other one, but um, we'll get into that. Fair enough.
0: Hey, guys, guess what's happening right now, right? So basically, we are doing another kind of double uh, classic album series podcast. So um, if you are a long-term listener, you will know that if you go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash riot act podcast, we have a £5 tier. On that £5 tier, if you pay £5 a month, you get access to a plethora of podcasts regarding um, some of our favourite albums ever made, ever, 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 where we go into extreme depth. Uh, and uh, and really kind of do a do a deep dive on some of the best records ever made.
1: This one's going to be no exception, is it, Steve? Oh, this is
0: going to be absolutely no exception at all. Yeah, usually myself or Remfrey picks an album by a band, which we think is their definitive album. We're trying to only really pick one, but um, when Remfrey picked uh, Zero, One, Ten by Radiohead, which is essentially in Rainbows and OK Computer, that kind of gave me the impetus to go, well, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to pick two albums by the same band as well then, because I found it quite hard to pick which of the two records um, that we are going to be covering uh, I, I would want to cover. So um, yes, that's over on our Patreon page. Uh, we do that all the time. If you'll listening to this, part one of this has been given out free um, because we just think that's a nice thing to do. And part one, what we're going to be talking about today is about the Manic Street Preachers' 1994 album, The Holy Bible. After back that, to 19,
1: you, back to 1994 again. Back to 1994 <laughs> again, and then back
0: to 1996 again. Because if you go yeah. over <laughs> to our Patreon page, as I said, Patreon.com/slash Right Act Podcast, you can listen to the second part where we'll be we'll be detailing the follow-up record,
1: Everything Must Go. Um, yes. to, to haters of the 90s, um, a grow up uh, and be <laughs> yeah. um, we we will be doing records that aren't in and around the 90s you'll just have to forgive us because we are both child children ch- childs of the night children of the 90s um, but we we we're both aware that we've been very 90s heavy recently we have we we, we will we will sort that out but yes
0: yeah you know there's been a few we were excited to get some of the ones that we were excited about over and done with first of all and this just happened to be one of them um so this week uh renfrey you know that episode of red dwarf um this is quite a niche like way to start the podcast for some people but you know the episode of red dwarf where this ship splits into two and all the bad and horrible stuff is on one ship and then all the kind of niceness and the best stuff and the the nice side of everyone is on the other other ship but it's essentially the same ship i'm showing Um, my
1: nerd credentials here but i believe it's series five and i believe the episode's called angels and demons i mean i can't tell you that much i just remember seeing it on telly back in the day uh angels and demons angels and demons gives you the right yes the analogy yes 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 um this is
0: sort of the most pronounced musical version of that by a single band ever, isn't it, really?
1: It absolutely is. It's so... It's been... I, I'm I'm aware of both of these albums, and I knew them both um, coming into this, um, one more so than the other, but I, I, I. I've grown up with both of these records. However, I have never extensively listened to both as much as I have over the past week or so, because mm. we're, like... Well... <laughs> I think fundamentally not to spunk it or anything like that but when I'm in the mood for one I'm never in the mood for the other and vice versa because they uh, are how so <laughs> fucking yeah. different and the mm. fact that they're 2 years apart the fact that 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 it's the same band minus one basically, member basically yeah basically yeah it, it is it's it's bonkers it's bonkers mm.
0: Mm. so um I mean we've spoken about the manix before I mean I think really this is this is the period to go into, really. Mm-hmm. I think. Yep. Um, but before you start listening to this, if you do want a little bit of context of where the Manics were before this, we have actually spoken about that before, and you might want to revisit our um, our Rioters review, the first ever Rioters review that we ever did about Gold Against the Soul, which is very much the kind of lost album of that incredible four album run that they did in the in the uh, in the early to mid nineties. Um, And it gives a bit more context as to where we're going to start. So I will stop for a second for you to go over to go and listen to that now. Pretty good, right? That's a pretty good (laughs) podcast. Presumably you paused it and then listened and then you're like, ah, I get get where we are now. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we did talk about the kind of glam years. Um, I think in that podcast, I called them agit-punk terrorists. And you mentioned how they wanted to sell 16 million copies of their debut album and split up. And that kind of massive bombastic feather boa lipstick and um eyeliner and glitter manic street preachers is a very evocative uh, era of the manics that they've never really been able to shake even though it only really lasted for two one might even argue one album uh, and th- neither of these albums really have anything to do with that period of their career at all even though <laughs> it all happens within the space of basically five years
1: i think um it was such a uh... I mean, again, I apologise if I'm if I'm going in too early on this, but I think a band coming from where they did, a Welsh mining town, um, being um, fashionably at least inspired by the T Rexes of the world and so on and so forth, that massive sort of glam movement was probably such a sort of shock to the system, especially a, 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 for those around them. Um, that that's probably why that um, connotation has stuck. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, generation terrorists. I suppose Richie Edwards kind of always maintained that sort of eyeliner, gloss, glam thing um, up until his dis- disappearance. Spoiler alert. Mm. Although, if you don't know that... It's not on. really. <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, but, but um, yeah... Um, yeah 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 it probably was only for generation terrorists really even i i, I had a brief quick look at the uh, la Tristesse, uh, Tristesse, Fucking hell. la trietteessaing thank you um video which is on gold against the soul um uh yesterday actually and um even in that video they've they've toned down the glam massively mm. um mm. so yeah
0: they did um it's hard to know where to even start i think with the holy bible um the album well let's try to uh the album was released on the 30th of august 1994 i found i (laughs) just so you know i have gone through books magazines the internet many many manic street preachers documentaries over the last probably 10 days i would say i've probably watched around between 20 and 25 hours worth of manic street preachers interviews um And I have to say, Renfrey, not to sound like a nerd or anything, but uh, I I didn't learn a single thing that I didn't already know, because (laughs) it should be pointed out. And we might put this up on our socials. I was a fully paid up member of the cult of Richie Edwards uh, Mm. around the time of, um, you know, kind of just post his disappearance. So um, What, what
1: do you mean by that? Just just to fill people in who might not know what you're talking about necessarily. Um oh, I mean specifically the cult of Richie Edwards. What do you mean? But I mean I know what you mean because I've seen the photo that you're referring to, and it's fucking <laughs> it's fucking hilarious, by the way. And we will, yeah. we're we're, we're going to put it on socials, right? Yeah, you don't yeah, mind yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm not, not precious
0: brilliant. about that. Yeah. Um, I just had my hair dyed as well, so that was it was good. Oh mate um, the
1: bleach curtains are fucking hilarious. They're
0: yeah. Wonderful. Um, Richie Edwards was. Uh, was an icon. He was a mm. he wasn't a musician. Um, he no, was, he wasn't. He was, uh, he was uh, an icon, he was a band leader, he was a personality. And people in the same way as Kurt Cobain, Jonathan Davis, uh, Gerard Way, um, you know, David Bowie. Richie Edwards is one of those people that people follow, that people obsess over. And I got into the Manics. I mean, I was going to ask you this, what was the first Manic song you ever heard? um mine wasn't designed for life but I think the first time I I recognized it being the Manic Street Preachers may well have been designed for life so when I got into the band Richie was gone and as soon as I deep dived the rest of their discography I quickly became one of those obsessive people which is weird because I wasn't obsessed with him when he was around I was obsessed with him the kind of aftermath of him not being there. The story to me was so fascinating. The story was so unusual. And his impact on the music they made, even though he didn't write any of the music and he didn't, he couldn't play any of the music, and in terms of the way they sounded, he had pretty much nothing to do with the way they sounded really. But his influence on the band as a whole is just absolutely monolithic, monument, huge cannot be understated
1: the richie edwards um connection with his own band is one of the most interesting fascinating and bizarre um relationships a internal band member has had with a band ever um i i think um as you say richie was not a musician um quite infamously um many of the times that they um played i don't know if this was um against his knowledge or if he knew about this or or whatever but his guitar wasn't even plugged in a lot of the time although so they claim anyway um uh and but he was very much there as a sort of presence and as a um walking manifesto is that fair to Mm. say um
0: yeah he's like Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker all rolled into one. Yeah, But with yeah, no yeah, musical yeah. ability.
1: And the other weird thing is um, the other three members of the Mannix, I think particularly Nicky Wire, um, looked up to Ritchie so much. I mean, they were... Uh, it, it, the impression I get, and I've not even watched anywhere near as much documentary footage as you have, although I have done a little bit for this. The impression I get, though, is that um, they like uh, put him on a pedestal almost like they thought he was so fucking cool. Um, Mm. And for uh, that's quite a weird relationship for people in your band to have obviously fans do that sort of thing all the time. But um, there is an argument to say that the the three members of Manic Street Preachers that we know now kind of followed Richie around um, like, this is going to sound harsher than I mean it to, but like laptop dogs, they were just like, oh my God, he's just this fascinating presence that they were just, you know, that does sound harsher than I meant it to, but like they, they were just fascinated by him and followed his every move. And, and, and um, it's, it's a really fascinating dynamic, which is very difficult to kind of interpret because I don't know if there's ever been a dynamic like it before. Like Richie Edwards, isn't a Bez, you know, it's not it's no. not that at all um it's just yeah it's a very interesting relationship to answer your question re when i first heard manix um i don't remember but probably almost certainly a design for life which i just feel like is one of those songs which has just been in my life um for- forever it it hasn't because it came out when i was 11 um but um yeah it would have been it would have been designed for life I'm probably one of those people who for a short period of time, and let's face it, there would have been millions of these people who assumed that Design for Life was the band's debut single. Who assumed everything mm-hmm. must go was their debut album. Um, I for about six
0: hours' time. This conversation is rent-free. You jump in. Apologies. Way apologies.
1: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. But but you, you you asked me when I first heard them, and, and, and I'm just trying to give the context. Like I think that I think I would have been one of those people, but then I found out very quickly yeah. when I when I, I properly became a fan. Um, there were all these allusions to the to you know the Manic Street Preachers favorite band was Guns N' Roses and we've discussed um as a collective or certainly mm. early on and we've discussed Guns N' Roses already it was the first you know Use Illusion 2 was the first album I chose in this uh so that immediately pricked my ears up I was like that Design for life band like Guns N' Roses and then I discovered Generation Terrorists and um Holy Bible and um Gold Against the Soul so yeah, the soul. That, that that's where my journey began with them yeah
0: Yeah, I'm actually fairly similar, but uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, So, you know, yes, you're right. The cult of Richie Edwards, which kind of built up through, you know, the fact that he was that photogenic, that he kind of seemed to be, you know, he was the one who did all the interviews. Um, He was this very, very flamboyant, yet quite dark, very... I mean, you watch old interviews with Richie and whereas some of the other bands you know particularly early on in the generation terrorist era they seem not nervous or unsure of themselves they do always seem quite sure of themselves but richie speaks with a command Mm. and a pace and a tone which is he's so assured and Mm. i think he was the assured one so they were like well look he can do that um there's a quote and the other the other uh, thing would
1: just sort of be quiet in the background wouldn't they really for the most mm, part mm. um but yeah sorry go on
0: uh, there's a quote in um, in a, a, a Manix documentary called No Manifesto where uh, I think one of their old guitar techs says um, they said they're going to teach Richie how to play guitar. Um, Richie couldn't play guitar in the same way as a blind person couldn't see. So it's not even like he didn't try or he didn't, you know, want to have a go at playing guitar. Uh, he literally just could not fucking play the guitar mm, at mm, all. Mm. Um, which is, again, like I say, it's fascinating how this cult kind of surrounded uh, itself around him. Obviously, the incident at, um, you know, one of their early shows in Norwich when Radio 1 DJ Steve Matt came up and questioned their integrity and, you know, how serious they were as a band. And Richie carved the word, you know, for real into his arm, um, which is unbelievably graphic. I mean, when I say I carved, he carved it in, he really kind of chopped his arm to pieces it is a shocking shocking thing to see yeah and nicky wire's reaction of we just thought he was so cool and james dean bradfield there's another documentary we said i wish i'd been able to think of that or i wish i had the, the guts to do that um kind of again yeah tells you everything you need to know about how they felt about him they thought he was cut from a completely different cloth to them even though they were the they were the band do you know what i mean they were absolutely the band
1: one of the members of the Mannix in one of the documentaries I saw said that he, he had different ingredients to the rest of us, as in as in he was made from yes. different stuff, you know, and I think that's a really mm. good way to put it. I think it's really, just just to um, pick up on your point, re-guitar um, and interviews, it seems to me that Richie, uh, you know, uh, this is conjecture to a degree, but I think Richie probably spent far more time rehearsing what he was going to say in interviews than he did playing guitar um i think that that much is obvious I th- he is a walking mm. soundbite isn't he um yeah he, absolutely he there's a there's an awful lot of things that he wants to say and i feel like in some of the interviews i've seen with him regardless of what question he's like he he you know he isn't rude and he does answer the questions but at the same time He's got something he wants to say, and he's going to find a way to say it. I think is probably fair to say. That's that's what I picked yeah. up from watching those interviews.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like I said, he is just so focused and so articulate and so <laughs> just calm in the face of any yeah. kind of uh, you know like questioning at all. Um, really
1: calm. Really calm. One of really their, really calm. their are publicists. Terry Hall I want to say she said Terry that Hall. um yeah. she said that um he had a uh, books worth of sort of well yes i suppose a manifesto um of basically things he wanted to say and that's what he would be that that was almost his rehearsal do you think oh you're pulling a face do you not think that's true
0: no no, I do. I'm putting her face for a different reason because Sonja's done a shit and it <laughs> smells. And she's waited like literally 10 minutes into a six-hour podcast and she's done a shit and so I'm going to have to clean it up because I That's can't sit here with that smell Mate, no, Give me two minutes. <laughs> you fucking smelly cat. Uh,
1: oh dear. One of the documentaries that I watched had um, Manic Street Preachers publicist Terry Hall um, and she mentioned how a lot of the time Richie just seemed to be um sitting around writing but she described it as books worth of sort of rhetoric um about his thoughts on the world and what he wanted to say in interviews and so on and so forth so yeah i think it's very um obvious maybe or or clear to say that he was the mouthpiece for the band i mean he wrote half the lyrics for the, the mm-hmm. um, album uh, for Generation Terrorists and Gold Against the Soul. And Holy Bible, I believe, and I didn't realise this, I don't think. I didn't realise he wrote all of the lyrics for Holy Bible. Um, or or, or oh, Nicky Wire contributed the odd sort of phrase here and there, supposedly. But but the Holy Bible is uh, 99% a Richie Edwards what, lyrically. Is no, that right? No? no,
0: it's not, actually. It's oh, about okay. 70, 75%. Oh, okay, um, okay. They they always thought it was. I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later. But it okay. was only when the tenth anniversary came along, um, and Nicky started going through his old books. Actually, he said he he contributed a lot of the song titles themselves came from Nicky, uh, okay. and he said that there's a few like Four Stone Seven Pounds where he just looked at it and went. You know, or, or she is suffering, and he just looked at it and went, That's a perfect lyric. I don't need to change that at all. Um, everything came from Richie, but I, I think see. you know, um, but actually, uh, on reflection, Nikki did put in a little bit more, but still, if it's 75% Richie mm. and a lot of it's just song titles, um, it's still very much his album, so yeah. uh, we should probably get into that. I mean, basically, as I said, the the what we're kind of pointing at with richie Edwards is with the 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 sort of self abuse and the drinking and the being in a rock band and becoming the the icon of this you know this kind of cult band that they're 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 turning into um with that comes a lot of expectation a lot of pressure um and uh for someone as intelligent as richie Edwards it starts to take its toll mentally on him. And I guess um, we should talk about kind of the inspiration of of where the record comes from. Because when you listen to Generation Terrorist and God Against the Soul, they are albums that are angry and they are albums that are full of kind of political and socio-political rhetoric. They are um, records that are trying to say something. But in terms of where the Holy Bible goes, it's very, very different
1: true um although let's just pick up on that for a bit of context there's what's the uh the john the famous john lennon line on uh generation terrorists i don't care that john lennon's dead i'm paraphrasing there but um oh, that's
0: um on motown junk um, motown junk i sorry. laugh when lennon got shot yeah that's right
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so we go mm. so we're going from that which is already relatively antagonistic to mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> although in terms of antagonism It feels like that pales in comparison compared to what we get on the Holy Bible, aren't we?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'd say. So, uh, Nicky Wire says of the Holy Bible, that record is not music as we know it. It is a completely different state of mind. I'm interested in where that state of mind came from. And I think as inspiration for the record, let's start with Philip Hall. Uh, Philip Hall was the band's manager philip hall saw the band in 1989 uh, when they pretty much had just started and managed them up to his death in 1993 uh he also worked with stone roses um he was diagnosed with cancer in 1991 he continued to work with the band and actually threw himself even further into his work with the band once he was diagnosed with cancer um he passed away on the 7th of December, 1993. He was 34 years old. Uh, prior to his death, Richie had actually been staying at his and his wife, Terry, Terry Hall, who you've already mentioned a couple of times. who's ah. a band's publicist. Um, uh, he's been staying at his, his uh, th- at their home. His problems, um, kind of pre the event of Philip Hall passing away. We've already sort of talked about a bit from the kind of self abuse to the drinking, to the erratic behavior. Um, Post-Philip Hall's death, uh, this is where Richie stops eating and starts to become anorexic and also starts to become uncomfortable with the idea of touring in a band. Um, I actually found an interview from 1994 that was in HMV magazine. And it was actually uh, an interview that happened a week after the death of Philip Hall. And this is what Richie said. He said, um, he'd been diagnosed two years earlier, but when it happened, it was still a terrible shock to us. We were on tour in Portugal at the time, but we just cancelled everything and flew back. Philip was the first person to really believe in our music. When we started... We'd spend six months sending off tapes and letters and constantly hassling people. There'd been a lot of interest, but the classic reply was, we'll see you when you play London. But when Philip called me up, he said, I'm really interested in your lyrics. When you're in London, I'll definitely come down to see you play. I said that we were finding it tough to get a gig. So he said, I'll drive down and come and see you tomorrow. He started getting us gigs. And although we'd still not got a record deal... Philip, who recently got married, told us, look, you've got no money, you can live with us. We lived with him for a year in Shepherd's Bush, sleeping in two spare bedrooms, the kitchen and the lounge. He was very, very dedicated to us. Um,
1: that's above and beyond. So That is above yeah, and beyond. That's
0: not just, that's not just, oh, you're some guy who worked with us has died. That's not just, oh, the no. guy who was managing us has died. No, no. That is... That's a, someone who
1: believes in you.
0: Mm-hmm. That is someone who, you know has you know it, it believes in you to the point where they become like a trusted ally and uh, the band uh, you know i don't think it's an, exa- an exaggeration to say that band would not have made the impact they made without philip hall doing yeah. what he did for them no. so that in itself as the kind of opening point to where the Holy Bible comes from, I think is a massive, massive indicator as to why Richie's mood went down the way that it did. Because mm. as we probably will talk about throughout this special, grief can do some really, really fucked up things to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, that his brother, actually, Martin Hall, also um, worked with the band as well. Um, and he said, we were all a bit frail after losing my brother. And I said to Richie, please don't do anything stupid. He said, no, I'd never do anything like that. It wasn't the making of the album that he found troubling. It was the touring. If people are on a path, it's hard to get them off of that. So I think even, you know, with with what people already knew about Richie Edwards, he cuts himself. He's this enigmatic figure who will do whatever it is that he wants to do he's not the same as everyone else he's not your normal band member and then he becomes even more withdrawn he starts drinking he doesn't want to go out he becomes anorexic he says that he doesn't want to tour um and that is there are certain people you know littered throughout music where you just go they were always on some sort of path 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 some sort of crash course to something And it's at this point where I think the path that Richie Edwards takes becomes a one-way street. Do you know what I mean? Impossible
1: Mm -hmm. to turn around from that.
0: I don't know if you think that's fair.
1: Um, From what I know about it, that sounds accurate to me. mm. Um, um, Yeah, I mean, obviously I've not gone in on it as much as you have, but it definitely... um, It's almost as if the beginning of the holy bible signaled an inevitability about i mean the the manner in which you know um richie disappeared probably couldn't have been predicted at all but but uh, it probably started a path of inevitable disaster let's Mm. say
0: Um, Also, the other thing I think that's worth mentioning is the state of the music industry in this time. Now, we're not going to talk too much about what got big in 1994, obviously. good year for metal, the start of Britpop, the end of grunge. Um, But the big thing, really, obviously, you can't get away from Kurt Cobain's death on the 4th of April, 1994. Again, there's a documentary that Terry Hall says there was a darkness that fell over the industry, a general malaise. Now, I wanted to pick up on this because I think the Holy Bible wasn't the only album of dark material that came out that year you know post in utero um we had the holy bible we had the downward spiral by nine inch nails the first corn album um jar of flies by Alison and chains was released in january and then lane staley went straight into rehab Wait by the rollins band um 1994 is kind of the year i think where alternative music went to a very very dark place mm. um
1: i i sorry to interrupt i'd just like to throw in vitology there by pearl jam yep. um a because i'm a massive Pearl Jam fan but b just with the kurt cobain connection thing um uh when kurt died um people were like okay eddie well it's your turn to be the savior yeah you know, and i mean we'll we'll go into vitology one day on one of these but uh there was some dark shit it's it's probably miraculous that Eddie Vedder got out of that alive
0: yeah it really so. is and in fact even going away for alternative music for a minute mm. um there were an awful lot of high profile deaths in 1994 for mm. very different reasons for people in very different eras and um do you remember in 2016 when people said oh the world's coming to an end because all mm-hmm. these famous people keep yeah. dying 1994 mm. is a comparable year to that you've got Kurt mm. Cobain um Christian Path from Hull and Harry Nilsson uh, in music died but also Richard Nixon the mm-hmm. former US president, died mm-hmm. that year. Jackie Kennedy Onassis, John F. Kennedy's wife, died that year. Ayrton Senna, the um, mm-hmm. the racing car driver. I don't know if you've ever seen Senna, the documentary by <laughs> Asif Capardia, which is fucking incredible. I've seen um,
1: the three-hour Brazilian cut, and I have absolutely mm-hmm. no interest in um, Formula Me 1 neither. whatsoever. And I thought it was one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It's incredible. Yeah, amazing. I, Just, I watched all three hours in one go. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's an
0: amazing documentary, and you know a genuine, legitimate hero yep. in Brazil, uh, in his yep. in his sort of home country. Bill Hicks, yes, died in nineteen ninety four. The sort of comedic voice of a generation. Um, the footballer Andres Escobar was murdered after nineteen ninety four World Cup of after course. scoring an own goal for yes. Colombia. A really yes. horrible, brutal way to die. There's John a fascinating Candy.
1: documentary on that as well. Actually, um, yes, it's is. annoyingly I can't remember the name of it. On Netflix. I'm sure you can Google it. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. Uh, The actor John
0: Candy Mm, died mm. that year as well. Um, Terry Savalas, who played Kojak, uh, the actor died as well. Um, John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, two very high-profile serial killers, died in 1994 as well. And finally, uh, Kevin Carter, the photographer, died Mm, in 1994 mm. as well. Um, So for me... (laughs) It's a year where lots of quite horrible. Whatever you're into, be it sport or music or film or television or comedy, serial killers, or, or, or just <laughs> yeah, or politics, or yeah, or, or just general. I mean, no one's obviously going to be sad about John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer dying, but well, the I fact mean... that they that it brings up how much disgraceful things that they did. Just I'm being, kind of I'm being, adds to the general malaise.
1: Yeah, I'm being slightly facetious about that. But then at the same time, I mean, that that does play into some of the themes of this record, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Yeah. But, 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 you know, obviously the, there's a problem, particularly in America, of um, this is more of a Charlie Manson thing. But, you know, people putting serial killers on pedestals. We've talked about yes. this with the Natural Born Killers soundtrack uh, and the Natural Born Killers film. That is... In a nutshell, what that film is about, um, mm. but uh, certainly the Mannix cover this on a song in the Holy Bible as well. So yes, which I'm sure they
0: to. do. I mean, was alternative music before this? Was it really that that whole thing? Like, oh, grunge was so depressing. When you look at alternative music, Faith No More, Primus, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, Big Dumb Sex by Soundgarden, REM, was that was that depressing music? before um, all this happened alternative music was not
1: depressing those bands aren't depressing bands you could pick out odd songs from all probably all of those bands um for example under the bridge um, everybody hurts just to take red hot chili peppers and REM as examples and do a sort of truncated history and claim that it was all really super dour and depressing but then you're you know on the other side of the coin of those two examples funky monks ain't fucking depressing mate sir psycho sexy ain't depressing shiny happy people ain't depressing uh what's the frequency kenneth ain't depressing you know so um there is a narrative that can be lazily spun that it was super 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 depressing but if you mm. look at the entire era as a whole nah rubbish
0: no but certainly by 1994 um i think that after kurt passed away you know um that's when people started to go this sort of invasion of the mainstream that alternative music had which was so exciting when Smells Like Teen Spirit blew up which was so great when we were all heading off to Lollapalooza you know which was uh, us winning MTV awards and being on top of the charts and knocking Michael Jackson off the top of the chart by 1994 the kind of realization of what that meant to be a mainstream multi-platinum selling pop star essentially I think really began to take its toll ...on a lot of people. Kurt Cobain would be one of them. Richie Edwards would be another really obvious one as well. But when you look at... ...you know, what Trent Reznor did... ...when you look at what happened to Lane Staley... ...to Scott Wayland... ...to, um, to, to Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon... ...to then a couple of years later... ...Bradley Knoll in Sublime. This is the point, I think... ...where shit starts to get a bit... Na- ...like not nasty as in people are being nasty it all gets a bit like, be careful what you wish for.
1: Mm. I suppose alternative culture, something that we like to do in alternative culture is to sort of celebrate the um, underdog. And the underdog Mm. can often not always but the underdog can often be those in society who who are sort of um, pushed aside or pushed out or try to be ignored and uh, sometimes they might be people who are not very well Um, and the escalation of a large amount of people who mentally were probably not very well um, I think probably came to a head in 1994 I mean I'm you know just repeating what you're saying in different words basically but yes i think i think um having all of those people who uh, had who 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 were unstable mentally i'm sort of trying to pick my words careful carefully um being put on this pedestal I, it, it it almost might have been an inevitability that that something like this was going to happen but yes
0: mm. Mm. i think this is you know for me it's certainly where A lot of those bands woke up and started to realise that it was quite a sour, empty experience being a big band.
1: Yeah, that the dream was not what they thought it might be. If they even ever wanted that, I mean, I don't know. Maybe some of them did. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certainly, I mean, you know, uh, there's always a rhetoric spun that Kurt Cobain never wanted to be famous, yada, 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 and then his journals are printed and we find, no, that's actually... Bollocks. Exactly what he wanted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what he wanted. And uh, but I think I think to be honest, um, you know, that uh, people people are complex. People are very complex, com- complicated individuals, and. um they, they. I think the truth, I think it's a grey area, basically. I think there's probably times mm. when Kurt Cobain would have loved to be super famous and a, a, quote, a, quote, a rock star. I think there's times that he really didn't um, mm. uh, because there are great things about being a rock star and there are shit things about being a rock star. So I think probably there was a push and pull for, for all of these people, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, so I think to kind of move on, so that's obviously that was what sort of alternative culture was was like in, uh, in 1994. And I think that's where it was going. Um, as we said, you know, just to kind of, in, in the general thing, um, a great year for metal, far beyond driven, and uh, the first Corn record, and, you know, Deliverance by Corrosion Conform. You know, we went through all of these before, like a, a really, really great year um, for metal. The kind of, the start of Britpop, uh, you haven't heard us saying this yet, but we've done a special on Park Life by Blur. And when you hear that, we'll put the kind of the whole Britpop story into a bit more context. But really, neither of those things feel particularly relevant for the Holy Bible or for the Manic Street Preachers.
1: Uh, do, do you know what I adore about the Holy Bible so much? Nothing feels relevant to it. Yeah like yeah, it is true. it is it is within a bubble on its own even within the manix um discography it is within this kind of <laughs> this is a stupid reference i don't know why it's just come to my mind but it reminds me of bubble boy from seinfeld it is just in and of itself it is just a thing it's a thing it, it, it exists within its own um hemisphere almost it's just it doesn't didn't feel influenced by anything else um i was going to say it didn't influence anything else i mean it must have it, its influence probably wasn't felt for years and years to come. I mean, certainly the rhetoric, again, I apologize if I'm spunking this, but the rhetoric for ages was like everything must go is the classic. And it feels like um, the revisionist history has gone to actually, Holy Bible is the classic, isn't it? But mm. I don't think Holy Bible was recognized en masse as a classic for decades for a long fucking time basically uh, for a long, long time, time yeah, yeah a, a decades might be a bit ott but a long time uh mm. it may it may have even been the it's 10th anniversary edition um when people started going you know what that is the one isn't it um but mm. uh you know everything must go being the kind of mass breakout i think a lot of people went to that one as the classic
0: yeah i'm time wondering if I mean because it was always the one that I was like oh the Holy Bible the Holy Bible and you know we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit yeah, but yeah. I think in terms of um, the first sort of indicators that this was going to be a very very different Manix record and I think the indicator that this record like you say in their discography completely stands alone is the look of the band at this point at this point in their career um, feather bows and lipsticks were out army fatigues and military garbers in um the band reference sort of Sandinista era, the Clash, as inspiration for that, Echo and the Bunny Men as well. Um
1: I think it's such a fucking cool look. Like I love the look. I remember um I hope I'm not um spoiling this, but I just remember seeing all of the I mean I mean in retrospect, because I didn't see it at the time. I mean, this album came out when I was nine and uh Metallica scared the shit out of me when I was nine, let alone this. You know, I I wouldn't have been able to stomach this when I was nine years old. But I remember going back and seeing footage of the band there then. And A, they look like a totally different band to what a lot of people will recognise as Manic Street Preachers. Um, But I read the Balaclavas. Like we have to talk about the balaclava, surely we do. This, Absolutely, this, um, surely a reference to the IRA stuff, which um, um, was fairly prominent. Like is, that's how I almost, always interpreted. Okay, sort of.
0: So James decided to wear the balaclava for a couple of reasons. Um, th- the first, you are right. Um, the kind of the juxtaposition, as he saw it, as he called it, military and paramilitary. Uh, the garment was being the symbol of the IRA and sort of terrorists at the time, but also uh, it would, was a symbol of heroism from sort of the SAS as well. So he liked oh. the juxtaposition that that it, it, it was very, very extreme, like he said, hero or villain, military and paramilitary. Um, yeah, so okay. that was one of the reasons that he wore it. Uh, the other reason uh, was to kind of distance himself from the very personal lyrical content that Richie wrote, which would make him faceless from it, because he oh. found a lot of the lyrics on the record quite difficult to to sing, obviously. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. With, not hard.
0: Yeah. Uh, and he said it was sort of the first time where he was singing lyrics where he was like, I don't really feel like... Cause, when you're getting lyrics from someone else, you often have to get into a character. So you also have to cut. So you have to sort of play that part. I mean, actually I spoke to Matt from Trivium recently and where Paolo, their bass player has been um, writing a lot of the lyrics. He's like, it's been interesting for me trying to kind of inhabit like an actor, somebody else's mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, but when you're getting those lyrics, which are a deeply personal to that one person, it's kind of hard to get into their head. But also, as we probably will discuss a lot of the stuff that Richie was writing was almost from a third person himself as well. So he was having to get into kind of like inception, like there, there are levels of the character from with Itch, you know, and, and trying to, be able to decipher all that and remain James Dean Bradfield. He said he found really, really difficult to do. So yes, the uh, the IRA thing definitely is there. Um, and also, uh, yeah, to, to kind of make himself a bit more faceless. We talked about that with um, car seat headrests recently as we well, did. didn't we? About yeah, putting a mask yeah, yeah. on and it sort of you know that that facelessness making you seem a little bit more confident. Um, we,
1: we will talk. I mean, we we've moved the schedule around a little bit as well, but we will talk about it with Pinkerton and Weezer. I think. Um, I think not like there are an awful lot of lyrics which people could very easily misinterpret on this record i feel like it's so dark that those the sorts of people who would just willfully misinterpret them probably didn't even bother to listen to this record because it's so fucking dark probably not um but yeah yeah absolutely um
0: Nicky Wire called the entire look instinctive. He said it was very instinctive. Um, Sean Moore, the band's drummer, said, we loved it when Echo and the Bunnymen dressed up in army gear. It was a nod to that. We were more Manic Street Army than Manic Street Preachers back then. We went to every army surplus we saw and just picked up bits here and there. Uh, James has a great story about um, buying a sailor suit and saying he remembers when Sean bought his United Nations cap as well. And he was like, we just wanted it to be this massive mix of of stuff of ideology so whether it was fascist or communist or you know navy army whether it was you know the 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 very highest um uh colonel down to the the private um whatever they're fighting for just to be this weird kind of jumble
1: of just authoritarian
0: figures that's that was kind of the look that they were going for
1: um it's it's interesting that i always interpreted the masks and uh the the um balaclavas uh, and only looked at the negative aspects of that sort of stuff when James Dean Bradfield obviously wanted, you know, the SAS stuff, for example, I never got that at all. And I feel like for me, the reason for that is because the lyrical content of this record is so negative. It just sort of um, um, emphasizes that stuff, I guess. And and I, I I will hold my hands up and say that I didn't get the, the, the more positive aspects of that uh, stuff at all, ever. But well, that's interesting to hear. I
0: think it's kind of... There is a juxtaposition of sort of um, hate for the world and self-loathing on this record. Yeah. Like kind of outwardly projecting disdain and also inward self-loathing. And I think this whole record is a massive, although most of it is very negative, it is a massive juxtaposition of of everything. And I think James picking up on that as he kind of read the lyrics and as he went through everything... um, you know, it, it it speaks of the, the I think it, it's it's telling of the the kind of the layers of the record. I think it also shows just how much thought the man. You know, we we've spoken about bands who put thought into everything: the artwork, the packaging, the way they look. Bands who really kind of come up with a concept which is that is overarching throughout the entire period of their career and make everything fit. And they literally thought about everything.
1: Um, isn't it? Isn't it interesting how Manics were amazing at doing that on their fir- on their first three records, and in my opinion, um, not not have become not good at it, but but not to the same extent that they used to since Richie yeah. went. Mm. Is oh, this? Well. Yeah, okay. Is this a good time to talk about James Dean Bradfield um, interpreting um, Ritchie's lyrics? Or do you want to go on to that later? We'll, get
0: the, well, I think we can move on from the look, really. I mean, basically, for me, James says that visual symmetry was never going to be there again. He kind of sees that look as as a full stop. Um, I think it definitely, much like this record in general, it just it stands that the whole thing stands out from everything else that they'd ever done ever Mm -hmm. and it is Mm -hmm. the perfect full stop to that period Mm -hmm. it's kind of like it's a big like a big letter at the start and then and also a full stop straight after it it's such a short period and it's so perfect it's like do you know what i mean it's like the the boldest well we'll get into but the boldest suicide note ever Mm -hmm. um But yeah, let's talk about uh, James and and let's talk about the the writing and the conception of the record, I guess. So um, James has said that the band became a little bit too rockist was his words uh he said we had lost our direction the band stopped listening to american music and returned to the influences that inspired us when we first formed including magazine wire the skids public image limited gang of four joy division and Susie and the banshees nikki ads whereas before we were listening to guns and roses and alice and chains we needed to have the freedom of failure the freedom of commercial failure you talk Not- about sorry, sorry just, just just to point out a lot of post-punk in there which yes. is interesting yeah, yeah 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 which was not a thing that was very popular at all
1: at that Fuck point no 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 in no. 1994
0: you, you know you did not hear that that stuff was i guess by kind of 85 i reckon that you know most of those bands had either split up or had gone on to do something quite different from the very stark early stuff that they were mm. doing but um Although, inter- again,
1: interestingly, not to um, um, dismiss what Nikki Wye was saying there, but interestingly, what, what I love about this record is it has all those post-punk influences, but that Guns N' Roses slash Alice and Chains stuff, I think is still there. It's just not as pronounced as it is on Generation Terrorists in particular and um, Gold Against the Soul. And I think it's that awesome... Con- uh, 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 combination and again that awesome juxtaposition juxtaposition is a word that we really should be using every other sentence when we talk about manic street preachers because that's what juxtaposition is what manic street preachers are all about um and it's what a lot of great arts all about as well um yeah. and um i think what something i adore about the holy bible is it has that definite apparent obvious post-punk influence but there's also fucking riffs on it. it. There's also Guns N' Roses stuff. There's definitely, I mean, there are bits where James Dean Bradfield sounds like Lane Staley. Th- th- just just little, little bits here and there. But there's there's odd bits where the melodic um, cadences and note choice that he uses. Annoyingly, I can't think of a single fucking example at the moment. But there was definitely a few times where I was like, that's very Lane Staley, that is. You know. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean th- I found a, a, a quote from um, from Richie Edwards who said they wanted to um make a mixture of Screamedelica by Primal Scream and Pantera.
1: Oh really? <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting because I didn't know slash think that I, I I thought that Pantera would have probably been on their radar and they would have known who they were, but I wouldn't have thought that they would have been like listening to Pantera. But that's interesting to well, maybe they were maybe they weren't i don't know but that's interesting that that he'd say that i didn't think i i don't listen to this record cuz this is one this is an example of a heavy record and a dark record but it ain't metal is it there, there Definitely i i, not I metal, don't hear but... i don't hear any metal influence on this album at all is that fair
0: no i don't really no. so the
1: pantera that's an interesting thing for him to say because I, I, I mean, they yeah. threw
0: in so many. They threw yes. in so many different references yeah. from yeah. all over the place. I mean, I, I suppose that's probably where we should go next in terms of like. Um, so as I said, uh, both. Nicky Wire and James Dean Bradford have gone on record to say that Richie wrote between 70 to 75% of the lyrics on the record. It took Nicky as I said about 10 years to realize this when he went through some of his old lyric books. So he right. actually went through some of his old lyric books for the 10th anniversary and he previously only believed that he had contributed a couple of song titles.
1: I think it was that was 99%. I th- I think that's where my misunderstanding came earlier mm. in this episode because the, yeah. the documentary I got that from was from the this is my truth era and and Nicky actually says there that it's almost entirely richie's record but uh, obviously yeah. he was he was wrong on that yeah. yeah
0: but he he does say that um pretty soon it was obvious that richie's creative flow was far outstripping mine so um you know the band usually would kind of work together uh and um they would sort of sit down and write and they would sort of create stuff you know, with the couple of them writing lyrics together and then the band going away and Sean and James kind of putting music to it and then they're all coming back together. And Whereas in this point, Richie would just come in one day and hand them this massive dossier. And, you know, Nick, uh, Nicky himself was saying that he was, he was reading like five books a week. Um, And Nicky was like, you know, he, the the references he was coming up with the things that I'd never even heard of before. And, um, you know, and then when you read the lyrics uh, and, I mean you want to talk about James trying to put music to those lyrics uh which he's admitted that he found it very very difficult to put the music to these lyrics which I I, I find it incredible to listen to and go how the fuck have you how done the that f- and and, fuck he, have and you he's done also that, yeah. how shocked he was at some of the content um archives of pain for example has oh. been in a, a song where he believed it'd be quite a kind of pro death penalty right wing song um he's uh-huh. gone on to call that song miscalculated um he says i remember getting lyrics like yes and thinking you crazy fucker i wouldn't say they shocked me they just surprised me they were very voyeuristic and personal um archives of pain uh james had to try and find a way to inhabit that character uh and he said the only way he could do that is by thinking of people um using continually using religion as a crutch for when they don't get justice so there's a quote that says mm. now we've now we've evolved religion is useless but if there's no punishment from society then people go back to re- to religion to get resolution mm. uh and he felt like that's the only if, if he unless he kept that idea in his head he couldn't sing those words mm. um you know uh, i mean yeah how james dean Bradfield got these lyrics and turned them into anything approaching a song is <laughs> one of music's great mysteries
1: i think um there there's a i'm sure you've read this in your um uh, research, but there's a brilliant article on The Ringer, which I hadn't even heard of before, but if all of the um, journalism on The Ringer is as good as this, then I, I'll be looking at it a lot more about the 25th anniversary of the Holy Bible. Um, and there's, I mean, I'll probably be quoting for this article a lot, because it's a great great article, but there's one part where it says if there's ever a vote on Rock's, Rock's greatest ventriloquists, James Dean Bradfield deserves consideration for the top spot. Um, and yeah i i mean the manner in which he it, it i still find it astonishing that james dean bradfield doesn't write any lyrics like or or yeah. or, or certainly wasn't around this period i don't know if that's changed since, then, I don't since think then he does no i don't think he does i like he is it's amazing how well he manages to um uh interpret this stuff and and make it his own um and especially when you consider some of the content of this record it's doubly impressive um and also the sort of the stream of conscious kind of richie edwards clearly had a lot of ideas that he wanted to get out you know um another part of that um article and i think this is a really really good point it's talking about archives of pain in particular but i think you could say this is the record as a whole the direct provocations of a song like archives of pain are disarmingly articulate without necessarily being intellectually cognate Mm. and i think yeah that's exactly right isn't it there's that you can hear that there's clearly a very intelligent well-read man behind these lyrics who's thought about this stuff a lot but it is a lot of it is rather unintelligible Mm. and i think sometimes that is uh a criticism that the manics get and it's one that i understand i do understand that criticism to be fair um but i think but i think when you look at the sheer wealth of stuff that james dean bradfield was probably given I think it is absolutely astonishing that he manages. I mean, taking a song like Yes, um, we've discussed before, we talk all the time. Um, Fiona Apple's a recent example, Weezer. Um I mean, there's so many times where we talk about the juxtaposition between um happy music and really dark, dark, dark lyrics. Isn't the Holy Bible the pinnacle of that? Because I mean to describe the the music as happy might be a little too OTT, but a song like Yes, for example, doesn't I mean the riff is quite it's quite the riff is quite jolly. You could you could you could interpret it as jolly, and yet the lyrics I mean you want a boy, so tear off his cock, tie his hair in bunches, fuck him, call him Rita if you want. I mean, yeah. fuck.
0: That's the opening song and a single as well. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about C- yes. Cunt and, is and, the third
1: word on this album. Yeah. No, there's, for, there's, The fourth word on this album. It's it's fucking ridiculous. It's absurd. Sorry. There's actually a quote from from
0: James um, who said when it became apparent that yes was being sort of potentially gonna be a single single, yeah. (laughs) They were like, can we get some sort of radio edit for it and take the word cunt out of it? And James said we did not consider taking the word cunt out of it. We didn't want to change it to dumb bastards or dumb Mm. whatever. Um that's just how we were yeah, that's just how we were thinking at the time. They were absolutely unwilling to change any of the lyrical content to get them on radio. And this is for the first song and it's a sing and you're gonna release it as a single (laughs) It's fucking mad. It's I mean, yeah, like you say. The the fourth song on the whole record is cunt, and you are releasing it as a fourth single, words, and yeah. Yeah. Y- y- like it's absolutely crazy. And to go back to that kind of again, the you know Richie's um, intelligent, if kind of meandering opinions and and thoughts on this record, which you know I, that's another thing. Like Nicky Wire said, probably contributed to him going the way he did because he was morally tying himself up in knots all the time yes you know he was kind of constantly going questioning everything and constantly trying to tear everything apart and going we shouldn't be doing this but and i think that but then that contradicts that and you know he just he he read so much of everything and he was so well informed that he just couldn't believe in anything anymore and you know that state of mind is what he brought into the studio um
1: it's interesting Uh, as well how richie uses um so i mean yes is kind of on the surface yes is about prostitution um and and it is about prostitution but it's also about him it's an analogy for him how he felt he was prostituting himself isn't it yes Um, that's right yeah um I mean, weirdly, I think it's as powerful, debatably. Not to take it away from him, but but debatably more powerful, just being about prostitution. To be honest, rather than using the analogy, um, it, it 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 feels using it as an. I don't know. I feel more sorry for the prostitutes that he's talking. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I keep using that word prostitute uh, for the for the sex workers that he's talking about, rather than. Um, Than him in this case you know especially people you know there are people who who will have their sex torn away from them because Mm. you know he could get more money that way um but yeah a very
0: young age yeah
1: yeah at a very young age i mean um yeah in these plague streets of pity you can buy anything for 200 pounds anyone can conceive a god on radio He's a boy, you want a girl, so chop off his cock, tie his hair, bunch his fucking, call him Rita if you want. I eat and I dress and I wash and I can still say thank you, puking, shaking, sinking. I still stand for old ladies. <laughs> can't shout, can't scream, hurt myself to get pain out.
0: Yeah. There's it's all a lot all there. Of that we're going to go through, mate. I mean, it really is. And that's the first song which I wanted to release as a single. <laughs> that's the first um,
1: song, yeah. So- and also, also, I mean, sorry, sorry. The, the, the samples. We need to talk about the samples on this song. I mean, the, f- the first thing you hear on this record is um, I mean, I, I, I hope slash assume it's taken from a fictional film or something. No, but it's the not. first is it, oh my God, is, it's right, okay. Uh, well, it's a pimp um, mm-hmm. saying, you can buy her, you can buy her, this one's here, this one's here, this one's here, and this one's here, everything's for sale. And so then, it's from
0: a it's from a 1993 documentary called Hooker's Hustlers Pimps and Their Johns uh which is about the prostitution right. trade
1: right and then nice. and what about what about that last sample because that's even worse um I think
0: uh which uh the last I it. can't I can't
1: find that actually uh I the don't last, know. sorry that's the one I don't know the sampled outro is two dollars you rub her tits three dollars you rub her ass five dollars you can play with her pussy or you can lick her tits choice is yours
0: yeah it's from the same it's all from the same thing
1: i i i have i mm, i don't even know where to go with that yeah
0: yeah it's not nice um but you know this is this is uh this is where we're 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 about to dive yeah, quite deeply is, into some very like obnoxious and quite upsetting things but this um, is
1: track one <laughs> on yeah. the 13 track records yeah
0: so the band to record went into the very tiny soundspace studio in cardiff um Nikki wire said at the time that they shouldn't use everything at their disposal Uh, originally the label wanted to send them to Barbados to record. Can you imagine this record being recorded in Barbados?
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) I mean... No, that's insane. That's insane.
0: They deliberately picked a tiny, pokey studio in Cardiff. James said uh, they wanted to record it as if they were method musicians. So they picked a very pokey, very small, very uncomfortable, cramped... Um, cheap recording studio in Cardiff, in the centre of town, uh, in this you know, so that they could hear the the sort of the the city uh, going on around them as they recorded it. Um, Richie cried and drank throughout the recording process. James recalls how uh, when they started a day, he would always hear the like tsst of an alcohol can opening. Um, they did it in an intense. Um, four week period of recording the whole thing was done in you know basically 14 15 long hour long days James said it was a four of us against the world I ate breakfast lunch and dinner there the only person that encroached on that was the engineer Alex Silver um Richie said when we were first in the band it was brilliant we thought it was going to be everything we dreamed of but it just becomes the same thing every day wake up travel gig we used to think that was brilliant it's not it's just the same human nature just reduces everything to routine Um, and he struggled he struggled with just sort of being in the studio that intensely at the time.
1: I didn't know that stuff, but listening to this record, I kind of feel like that's the only way you could do it. The the only way you can do something like this is to chuck yourself into it, isn't it? And and to, you know, you can't... I mean, we talked about... um, OK Computer was recorded, uh, you know, the band went in, then they came out and went on tour with Alanis Morissette, then they went back in again and did a bit more work, and then they came out. You couldn't make a record like The Holy Bible like this, because to be honest, if you let it lie for a bit... You would probably look back on some of the decisions you make, and you'd probably go, "Oh, crikey, that's a bit much, isn't it? We should probably tone that down." And there is no sense of anyone toning any down at any point during this record. No, um, and I think you'd, I think you'd start to second guess yourself if you took yourself out of that situation and looked at it. You, you know, and I, I'm not saying that as a criticism. I think that is actually part of why it's so brilliant. But mm. yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, so, I, didn't, I didn't know that but that makes perfect sense yeah
0: yeah so kind of after writing and recording the album um which most of it was done you know obviously that was done together uh richie just had to go off for a bit so richie just fucked off for a bit um sean liked the album and recording it when i the only thing i could find sean saying uh, is that he he liked he, he didn't want to be a quote-unquote big rock drummer And he liked recording it because he felt like he wasn't a big rock drummer. Um, So the album seems very
1: quiet, Sean. I mean, Sean and James seem relatively quiet, to be honest. But you know, uh, yeah, Sean seems very, very quiet. He seems like a very, very nice, shy man. (laughs) But yeah.
0: So um, we should probably talk about the various. Is there anything that really stands out for you in the album that you feel like you you want to talk about before we go into? I guess singles and the release of the record and etc etc is there any uh, any songs that really stand out for you as difficult or um
1: so you're important? not talking you're not talking about quality here you're just talking about difficult songs well yeah uh, Well, no.
0: however you choose to interpret that renfrey
1: okay um i think the most oppressive song on the album maybe because the music mirrors the oppressiveness is probably the intense humming of evil Mm -hmm. which is one of the most oppressive difficult to listen to songs i've ever heard in my life that was a terribly constructed sentence apologies for that but you know what i mean um uh we'll go into this later but um there's a british mix and and an american mix of um this album and um to to make comparisons i a b'd each track so basically listen to the british version of yes then the american version of yes and the british version of if america can't be bothered to say that title because it's really long (laughs) then the american version um the 12 or 13 minutes of listening to um the uk mix of the intense humming of evil followed immediately by the american mix of the intense humming of evil is one of the most difficult 13 minutes of listening to music i've ever had in my 35 years on this planet mm. it's so oppressive yeah um, it really is yeah um it's to the, the to the point where i almost don't like it yeah if i if it's, i'm totally honest
0: it's the hardest song sonically to listen to on the record definitely it's probably the closest they get to joy division at their most destructive i think Uh, it's Um, way
1: it's way more powerful than anything joy division did in my opinion i mean that's mm. probably because i'm not a joy division fan but i think it's fucking so uh, oppressive it's just the word it's just beyond fucking beyond dower and it's just ugh. i mean lyrically it's it's really no more um, oppressive than a lot of the other stuff on the album, nah. but I think because <laughs> because the music matches it, um, mm-hmm. it's just and just just the manner in which it sort of slows down at the end, the the the, the sort of slowed. But, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but it, it, it feels like a robot dying or something like that, but robot isn't right because there needs to be more emotion in it. It's just it's fucking well, horrible.
0: <laughs> th- there's a clip. Uh, there's a clip in one of the documentaries I watch where they're talking about um, the mines closing down in Wales. Obviously, they're from Black. The Mannix are from Blackwood, and yes, there was a big mining community, and the the closure of the mines was something which has played a huge part in, you know, I think, formulating their their sort of opinions and ideologies about the world. And there is clips of miner strikes and machinery kind of slowly closing like shutting down and they play that last bit of the intense humming of evil over the top of that footage and it just feels so bleak mm. do you know what i mean it just feels so hopeless so bleak so just give up mm-hmm. just give up there's mm-hmm. no reason to for you to do anything you've been beaten you've been crashed smashed down just fucking give up and i think that's what that's what that that song does, and mm. it would actually be kind of the perfect album closer, really. Um, But then you get PCP, which is possibly the most uplifting moment on the record, really.
1: Yeah, I th- I think I mean I understand what you're saying. I mean, you know, you you are such a f- fucking antagonist for saying that if you you, you only you would uh, think to end a record with the intense humming of evil to leave someone well, it just with that fits the, yeah, but it <laughs> no i understand the what you're fill. saying mm. <laughs> i understand what you're saying but you'd you'd leave people on such a low you'd leave people on such a down I, I totally get what you're saying but you'd leave people on such a downer i think you need pcp to lift you after that yeah um the last thing you hear on a record is actually very very important because it's your lasting impression of a Mm. record i think if um the intense humming of evil had finished it i think this record would have been torn apart because people would have just been so fucking depressed Mm. (laughs) listening to it and i I, that's not me saying it's a bad song. i think it's an amazing song in in lots of ways but it's one of those weird ones where i don't really enjoy listening to it um
0: yeah i think it's it's absolutely the least enjoyable song on the record for, yeah, for me which is not um, to say
1: it's the worst but it but it is the least enjoyable on the record
0: yeah uh, um there is uh obviously um for me i want to talk about four stone seven
1: pounds which the best song on the record in my opinion is that is that's your favorite song on the record i mean favorite in uh this context is a is an odd thing to say but yes it is yeah i think it's i think it's the most amazing um i think it's that thing i was saying earlier about um uh, how uh richie's disarmingly articulate without necessarily being in, in intellectually cognant. uh i think he is intellectually uh congent on this on this song mm. and 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 you know it's so fucking obvious what it's it's so stark and it's so obvious what he said you can't misinterpret this song you can you can it. it's funny you say that oh okay okay he
0: doesn't think he we know what it's about and the thing is, is he's not here to now go okay yeah i was just saying that but he says this song is about an old man thinking about his life uh it's about him going you know I, I've I've lived my life and now I want to to die. That's what this song is 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 is, what, is Richie Edwards' interpretation of it. Now, it's definitely not. And I think if he had been around mm. twenty years later to be able to go, you know, what I just said that in an interview, yeah, because I, think
1: being I facetious there,
0: yeah, because I didn't want to be able to face all these things about how personal yeah. it is. I think he would say that. But it's interesting to me that you know he wasn't even really willing to admit as to what this song is referring to. Um, well, it's a diary of his um,
1: um, anorexia, isn't it? It is, yeah.
0: There's there's a, there's a, 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 a quote from um, a review in Pitchfork on this song that says, um, pulling you into the head of someone who knows he has a problem and not only can't he fix it, he grows to lord it over others, twisting yes. it into a sort of superiority complex, harrowing stuff um
1: brilliantly encapsulated in the line uh, apologies i just need to find it um oh oh uh just look at the fat scum who pamper me so you know yeah. and it's like you're the one with the problem mate i'm not just saying that i'm not just saying <laughs> yeah. that as a fat guy i'm saying like like you know uh, you're you're talking about how you're four stone and seven pounds, you know, like uh, and, and and he was wasn't he? He was actually four no, no, stone and seven. No, four Is that stone that
0: four stone and seven pounds refers to the um the weight that you get to as an anorexic where it's impossible for you to survive.
1: Oh right, okay. So if that. you
0: if you hit four stone and seven pound, you're going to die.
1: My God, <laughs> and
0: there's nothing you can do to stop it. Um, yeah, I mean. <sighs> absolutely again the juxtaposition is this is a beautiful sounding beautiful song
1: song it's so beautiful I, yeah. it, it, I um, hadn't heard this song for a really long time and putting it back on I just wept just mm-hmm. wept at this song Um, and it for me it's the sort of juxtaposition of the beauty of the lyrics and Richie Edwards rarely wrote beautiful lyrics to be fair but this is one of the exceptions um i want to walk in the snow and not leave a footprint i want to walk in the snow and not soil its purity Mm. there's something really beautiful and poetic about that but then at the same time you're talking about being anorexic it's it's just stomach collapse stomach collapse at five lift up my skirt my sex is gone you know it's just so it's really uh it's really powerful
0: it's really powerful and incredibly brutal um and yeah i mean again you know the the juxtaposition of making something so sort of soft and fragile out of something so utterly fucking harrowing is is why this record is so great um mother tries to
1: mother tries to choke me with roast beef yeah
0: it's a brilliant
1: line and and when you talk about beautiful that outro that dreamy dream pop style outro kate and christine and kit kat i mean Mm. another brilliant line all things i like looking at too weak to fuss too weak to die choices skeletal in everybody's life. Yeah. Um, the um, those yeah. lyrics are really fucking bleak, but the the music underpinning it is beautiful. And then there's these beautiful, um, like James Dean Bradfield, then puts these beautiful guitar licks over it, like that that are almost Slash esque, like what he was doing in Estranged and stuff like that. Mm. It's really beautiful, and and he you know, and as I say, like lines like "Look at the fat scum who pamper me so." four stone seven an epilogue of youth (laughs) such beautiful dignity and self-abuse it's 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 one of the best songs of the 90s
0: yeah it's an amazing song Uh, it begins with dialogue from a 1994 documentary called carolyn's story uh which is a documentary about uh, anorexia and even that quote at the very very start i mean it's just shocking to you know i weigh too much to live but not enough to stay alive
1: um Uh, sorry i just it's i eat too much to die not enough to stay alive i'm sitting in i'm sitting in the middle waiting Mm.
0: i mean painful the first
1: the first lyric on the song is days since i last pissed Hmm. cheeks sunken and despaired so gorgeous sunk to six stone lose my only remaining home i mean we both went to drama school and um i don't know if you had the same experiences i mean obviously this is not an experience of mine but there was an awful there were a lot of um and i and you know, i mean it was women and it's because women get the um uh pressures put on to them to have this kind of, it's it's women who feel the pressure to to do this but um there were there were really beautiful young women who started at my drama school and by the end of it they had um lost so much weight that in some cases their hair was falling out and and i'm just like uh, b- because j- just so they could they can act and they can be they can be and i'm thinking of a couple of people in in particular who some some of whom are very successful actors now but i'm like fuck i don't think you won the game really because the what you've had to do to get there is i mean you know maybe they're happy i don't know and i hope they are because they deserve to be happy but it's like is that is that really worth it is it really worth making yourself ill to Mm. tread the boards you know and and i i think about those people quite a lot when i hear this song um Mm. you know it's weird it's weird for such a song uh, you know I, I i don't say this facetiously i'm not trying to like get sympathy or anything it's weird to to be so affected by a song which is so far from my own experience you know i am yeah. a big guy <laughs> this song is not talking about me definitely not but <laughs> no. i'm so all right uh but i am so <laughs> well mate i'm mate, i'm no. say, i've been fucking yeah, 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 yeah. smashing the easter eggs recently <laughs> i need to, like but i'm but i'm just so um affected by the song i'm so affected by it and and yet it is it's not an experience that i can relate to at all i think the power of that is amazing it's this song is incredible it's incredible
0: it's um i mean when i first got this record it was one where i almost didn't want to really listen to it because once i realized what it was i was like oh no Mm, mm. I'm not really sure I want to hear this. You know, it mm. became one of those songs like like Daddy by Korn where I was like, "All oh, right, I've heard it now and I don't need to hear it again. Mm. Uh, it became like, I mean, we spoke about the entirety of Caligula uh, mm-hmm. by Lingua Ignota and I'm just like, I still haven't gone back to that. It became a song that I respected, but I didn't want to hear. And as much as, you know, this record is... Is so bleak and so full of, you know, loathing. Mm. Um
1: and, and I, I've never
0: found it difficult to listen to. Like, do you know what I mean? I've never well, found it like, oh god, I don't feel like I can face this. But Fourstained Seven Pounds is one of the songs where I was like, I might skip this because it's just
1: well, just to pick up on that juxtaposition again, though, if you weren't properly listening to this song, you might assume it's a really lovely, happy song. I mean, that chorus and apologies to sing it, you Steve, but <laughs> I, 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 I want to walk in the snow. You know, you could yeah. you could camp. I just camped the shit out of that. But you, you really can, did. You can, you, you, can, you can camp the fuck out of it. You could make it you could turn it into a musical if you weren't paying attention to the lyrics. Mm. musically but again that's where the power lies that's where the power lies is the juxtaposition
0: yeah it's amazing um a song like sheer suffering feels a little bit more obvious as to what it is Mm -hmm. it's called sheer suffering uh it's a song about stripping desire from your being um (laughs) again god um Again, it's an absolutely like for me of of the of the sort of slower songs on the record. Sheer Suffering is my personal favourite. Uh, I a think great it's song. fucking incredible song. Yeah, um, yeah. Brilliant, uh, song. It, you know, uh, uh, just <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of the. As much as, you know, you look at the, the track list in Archives of Pain, of Walking Abortion, you know, um, the intense humming of evil, Die in the Summertime. The summertime yeah. Sheer Suffering is probably the one where you go, well, that can't really be a, about anything else. You know, that is definitely... There's, there's no kind of juxtaposition. This is a sad song. It mm. sounds sad. It sounds beautiful, but it does sound sad. And it's very obviously, like, this is a bad thing. Whereas I think you could take revel and go oh Re-ball. yeah you know, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah and and what you just said about four stone 7 pounds is like yeah. it, it i think you're not going to misinterpret she is suffering no uh
1: released yeah. as a single of course as well yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean okay. classic classic choice for a single got to number
0: 25 <laughs> in the UK singles chart as well yeah, so that's not a bad that's not a bad one at all is it um right, yeah let's right. move so i mean we can probably pick and choose different songs as we go through it, but we should probably talk about it getting released. Um, Faster, released as a single on the 6th of June, 1994, so a little bit before the album actually came out. Uh, it went to number 16 in the UK charts, and the band played the song On Top of the Pops and received a then record number of complaints due to James wearing a balaclava from a bunch of people who, like you, Renfrey, just thought, there's the guy from the IRA. It was uh, 25,000 <laughs> plus... 25,000 plus complaints on Top of the Pops um, Nicky Wire <laughs> said apparently a lot of them were they were using fire as well and they said you should, there was a thing at the time where you couldn't be using fire indoors and he was like actually a lot of the people complaining weren't complaining about the balaclava they were saying no they shouldn't be using fire indoors because I thought we weren't allowed to do that I don't remember no. that personally but that's that's what um, Nicky says but great the, song innit. it.
1: The uh, yeah great song the 10th anniversary edition comes with a DVD which has a bunch of um, footage from that time and that top of the uh, top of the box performances on it i'm sure it's on youtube as well i'm guessing yeah um uh yeah uh, i mean you know we're talking about the same audience who complained about um uh keith two years later yeah yeah yeah, just mugging into a camera which is all that video is it's just a man mugging into a camera my children (laughs) might watch this fuck off <laughs> yeah. um, um just just grow the fuck up um yeah fast as a brilliant song really oddly catchy um mm. the the way that james spits the lyrics on this song is so interesting i am an architect Yes, you know um really like really interesting delivery on the record um, well apparently that's because he song. thought
0: he thought it was um uh it was kind of emotionless. So he wanted to kind of show how, emo- like apparently according to Richie, this is a song about self abuse. Okay. Um, mm. I always okay. thought of it as a kind of power anthem, a sort of um, dictatorship fantasy is what I always yeah. kind of thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Same. But, uh, but apparently not. Um, but I mean, uh, fuck it. like it's, it's become even when, and there was a period around the kind of lifeblood, um, Know uh, Your Enemy, period, where the Mannix really disowned this record, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later. But, oh, you know, okay. I remember Nicky Wire going, I'm never playing fucking Revol ever again. And all the mm. people who come along and you wear your like, fuck off, we're not, it's over, we're not doing it, we hate it, we hate the record. A bit like Rivers Cuomo with with Pinkerton, which it's you Pinkerton. haven't heard yet. Us just talking about that, but we do. um And they're really like, we just don't identify with it anymore, we don't want to do it, like, no. Um, mm for a few years and even during that time they would still play faster
1: yeah yeah oh that's interesting it was also mm. one uh forever delayed wasn't it as well their um their best of which um is a hideously um uh mismatched uh, mismatched uh best of and and i mean i i i remember it coming out at the time and just completely and utterly dismissing it because it would have come out around that time that they weren't uh, super keen on let me just check yeah it 2002, was, it was 2002 apparently mm. 2002 so it's got yeah. like
0: masses against the classes and stuff like that on it but. it
1: does but it barely has anything from it on the holy bible and as a result i remember at the time being like best of fucking nonsense the best of should be the first disc should be the holy bible and then the second disc can be other smatterings of singles and sounds like you know motorcycle emptiness yada 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 but you know yeah my opinion anyway uh Mm -hmm. but yeah utter utter nonsense um i love the way that they managed to make an incredibly uh hook out of uh so damn easy to cave in man kills everything ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just like wow how, how have you you know i mean th- this record is full of that of course but um yeah uh it's a it's a really good song i mean uh, to be totally honest with you it's probably one of my least favorite on the record but but that's just mm-hmm. a testament to the strength of this re- album really because it's a great song Great song.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is a great song. And it is probably, I would say, the most famous song on the record. It's the biggest hit from the record.
1: Yes, it probably is.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it is. Uh, it was followed by Revol on the 1st of August, which went to number 22 in the charts. I always liked Revel oh. a lot. It was probably the song that I went, oh, right. Yeah, I get this. This is the most easily, like when I first heard this record, I was like, oh, okay. You know, I, I can grab onto this straight away. And it's just a sort of you know, a punky, upbeat, heavier number. Um, at this point, it's probably my least favourite song on the entire record.
1: I would probably agree. Uh, yes. Um, it's the most straight ahead. It's it like, whereas she is suffering, you're like, you're going to put that as a single? Really? Or yes. Uh, a single? Really? Uh, yeah. Revol makes perfect sense as a single. Mm. Um, absolutely yeah. perfect sense. Um, I like Revol because... Uh, Revol Revol whatever. I'm I'm saying Revol because that's how they pronounce it but it is Revol, isn't it? Um yeah. I like I like it um cuz it's a cuz it's a good song but yes it's um it certainly I think objectively it's the weakest song on the record to be honest with you. Um It's also uh hmm, people people um sometimes Accusatorily say that Magnic Street Preacher's lyrics are a little bit A-level, and a little bit kind of. Look at how many um, uh, philosophy books I've read. Look at how many political science books I've read. Look at my look at my book collection. Yada yada yada, and a lot of the time I do think that that um, is a very surface criticism and and just the sort of criticism that of like well you've not really looked into the band properly have you uh Rival is basically just a list of like those sorts of people though isn't it and and it's the, one of the times where I find it difficult to defend that yeah uh, or, I mean, are you, or are you going to tell me that it has an amazing meaning that I've totally missed
0: no no well I don't know why they're there but apparently it's uh the, the song is meant to be about I mean, Nicky Weiss says he doesn't know what the song's about, but Richie Edwards apparently has said it's a song about him his inability to hold down a relationship. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All
1: right. Uh um <laughs> is right. lover
0: spelt backwards. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Yeah. And so oh. it's basically it's basically um a bunch of kind of famous political figures and then something to do with their the the their sex life yeah um it's not a great i mean it yeah it's the i think it's the worst song on the record it's probably and it's it's still catchy and quite good but yeah, yes i
1: I think lyrically it's it's uh, I, i think when i say this is objectively the worst song on the record i think i'm mainly talking lyrically just because mm. so much of this record is actually brilliantly put together. And this is, you know, I mean, and, and it does feel like a tick list of like, look at all the people who I know, you know, Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, yeah. Yeltsin, Napoleon, Chamberlain, Trotsky, Che Guevara, Pol Pot, Farrakhan. It is a little bit like, look at how much I know about stuff. And I'm just like, I well, yeah, fine, whatever. But, you know, but, yeah. but it, but, musically it's still a fucking great song and 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 on the on the record like you really need it at that point it's sandwiched in between archives of pain and four stone seven pounds so it's it's you you need 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 something like like that yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah. um so you're picking four stone seven pounds your favorite song on the record rim yes that's fair enough um i'm gonna pick my favorite song on the record I really love of walking abortion, which we haven't even mentioned yet, which I think is <laughs> quite a scary song, but I think um, we should talk about that because it's yeah, a brilliant well, song. We, well, we should, we should then. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about of walking abortion, which, um, oh God, I mean, it's called of walking abortion. So
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's not positive, put it that no. way. Um, uh, Aesthetically, um, it, it's 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 one of the more aggressive, and I, I guess, kind of one of the most instant songs on the record in terms of you can shout that
1: chorus along the first mm-hmm. time you you've heard mm-hmm. it. Um, the the shout along, but I mean the 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 outro, the 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 who's responsible? You fucking yeah. are. Yeah. Ah, uh, I, I I, and then when. I don't know if it's James or Richie who does that at last who's responsible by you fucking go I don't know to who be James, does that isn't it? surely probably surely it's James, but- yeah it's, it's it, like such a brilliant example of kind of like when we talk about metal and uh, bands and like if you're sonically heavy all the time all the time all the time probably the only screamed lyric on the entire record but because yeah. it's because it's the only screened record it's heavier than any fucking metal album you care to mention because it's like mm. whoa where did that yeah. come from um, um love it it's so it's good.
0: about um, apparently, Nicky Wire said there's a, there is a worm in the human nature that makes us all want to be dominated, um, and that is what that song is about. Right wing, to- it's a kind of right wing totalitarianism, um, yeah. and basically just going like, "You want that?" And it's funny to record it. We're recording it the day after Boris Johnson has come on telly. Uh, recording this after Boris Johnson's come on telly last night and just went, um, "Go back to work, but don't stay in, stay out, mm-hmm. <laughs> just." For, give a fuck very um,
1: very sound leadership there um <laughs> and I, I feel very right. confident in the the direction mm. our country is going in at the moment yeah
0: yeah but you know that's we voted for it. And, it, and it does seem like there i was fucking this, didn't like, <laughs> no, you did. like sorry we, i'm getting as a country, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, we yes. did but but like he says you know that that really st- when i was researching this that that quote there's a worm in the human nature that makes us want to be dominated i was like yeah it feels very prescient to be talking mm. about that song and mm. thinking about that song today i'm not saying boris johnson is a right-wing lunatic uh, and, <laughs> uh that's not all i'm saying uh i'm just implying it let the uh, record <laughs> let the record show. Um,
1: uh, just before the uh, "Who's Responsible?" you fucking are Boris Johnson. Uh, little people in little houses like maggots, small, blind, and worthless. The massacred mm-hmm. innocent blood stains us all. Um,
0: sounds you, like you, a Marilyn Manson a lyric. Up. Yeah, it does, mate. It does, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. Um, so, I mean, I love "Of Walking Abortion." Um, I think I I, I absolutely love P C P, which is P C P. Which yep. which again is it feels very it was much more relevant today even Mm -hmm. than it would have done back then because it's about how political correctness um and the idea of being liberal ends up being the opposite ends up being this kind of like we must stamp down on people to stop them from being non-politically correct and thus being kind of fascist because of it and it's just a fucking banger
1: We must close off communication and we Mm. must shut down people who have different views to us rather than opening up and listening to their views and trying to discuss it with them and maybe make changes that way. Um, And, you know, that is something that has really risen up. It's um, something we both... uh, I mean, excuse me if this is wrong. I think we both broadly would say that we're liberal people, but then there are... Oh, you, yeah no well, well, maybe. well i I, I, I don't, don't know what that even fucking means anymore to it, these honest. days yeah 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 it, it is difficult to tell but then there are times who um where people who view themselves as liberal you, you're just embarrassed by them shutting trying to shut everyone down and uh, who, do, who doesn't agree with them and that is not the way you make progress you make progress by opening channels of communication not shutting them down and in um, fact and that's what the song's about
0: I, there's actually something that has come up recently, which is a really, really sorry to go off on this. Is a slight tangent when we've got a lot to talk about with this yeah, album, anyway. But um, there was a there's a feature in the current issue of Metal Hammer as we speak, which is in May 2020, um, and it's an interview with Nurgle speaking about me and that man. And Nurgle has said some fucking mad
1: things on his Instagram page over the years. He year, definitely right? said some controversial things. He said some yeah. silly things.
0: And, um, and when it went up that this feature was going out on, that, that I saw a few comments going, oh, Metal that uh, 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 it says, you know, Nurgle, man of the people or, you know, Satan incarnate or whatever. So I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. And then all these people... Before the magazine was even that, I was like, right, well, I'm not buying that. Why are you continuing to give time to Nurgle? Why are you continuing to do this? Why are you blah, 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 blah. If you read the piece, mm. rather than just being a kind of, you know, fucking online... You're, rather than cr- being like, willfully ignorant. Sniffer, yes, yes, rather than if being you willfully you actually ignorant. read it, you see that the writer, Dave Everly, says to Nurgle, you said that, what do you mean by that? And he just ties himself up in knots, Nurgle. Mm-hmm. Now you read that and you go, Oh, actually he's just like he's not as clever as he thinks he is. And from reading that, you go, Oh yeah, actually he's not he's not a Nazi and he's not a you know he's not a, he's not a right-wing lunatic and he's not really a threat to anyone
1: he's he just is a just a, a very
0: naughty boy he's just a bit of a silly dickhead and if yeah. you read it you yeah. suddenly you go oh i see like even he doesn't really know why he's doing yeah, it and it's exactly and he doesn't come yeah. out of it that well and no. that is what journalism is meant to do exactly That's what it's meant to do rather than going right ah, uh, we're not going to ask you why you put this quite obtuse looking picture on your Instagram which could be, you know interpreted taken, as, interpreted yeah, yeah. As, as something dodgy. We're not gonna ask you what it is, we're just gonna never speak to you again. Yeah. Like fucking ridiculous. But anyway, PCP's a brilliant song. Um my probably have having listened to it the last few days, I think this is yesterday might be the best song in it.
1: Oh okay. I like this is yeah, yesterday surprise. a lot. Um, um I, I just I I think of the um Ugh, ballad is definitely not the right word but of the slower songs on the album uh this is yesterday's a beautiful song don't get me wrong um when comparing it to the likes of she is suffering and four stone seven pounds it's probably my least favorite of the slower really? songs but i, I still think it's that. wonderful i still think it's great i can um,
0: understand that i just think it's the only song on the whole record i mean maybe saying it's the best i just think listening back to to it The other day, it was like, it would be nice. I've always said this album feels hopeless and it feels kind of emotionless and remorseless and maybe emotionless isn't the right word because there's a hell of a lot of emotion in it, but Mm. quite a lot of bitter emotions in it. This Is Yesterday is the one time where I feel like Richie Edwards goes, and actually goes, and and does what Kurt does on In Utero. I mean, Mm. we'll talk about, In Utero is an album that says, that feels more like it's going fucking. I feel I, I've like a lot of it is, I'm sorry that I fucked this up so bad. I, and I'm, you know, and I wish that I could go back to having not done this a lot. A lot of in utero covers that idea on stuff like all apologies and um, the heart shaped box and all these, the, the sort of the, the more, um, again, you don't want to use the word ballad, but the, the less, sort of caustic songs the slower um, songs yeah. yeah yeah this is yesterday is the only one i think that taps into that so much of this is you know like i say caustic and acidic and hate-filled and this is yesterday isn't um it's sort of where he feels a little bit sorry for himself for a minute it's
1: one of the few songs where he points to himself and he goes i fucked up hmm Yes, I, you know what? I've never considered that. And looking at the lyrics now, I stare at the sky and it leaves me blind. I close my eyes and this is yesterday. Yeah, I—I uh, I, that I've never really—that's never really occurred to me before. And that might make me reappraise it next time I go back to it. Not that I think I need to reappraise it because I still think it's fucking great. Yeah, it's, great um, it's, song. it's just it's just if I, if I were putting the three slower songs together and and if I were forced to order them, it would probably be number three at the moment. But yes, I. it's a it's a fantastic song. I'm not sure if it'll ever replace Four Ode Seven Pounds or She Is Suffering For Me because they're just so good. But But yeah, it's a... If, the, if like to say that this is the weakest slow song on the record, considering the quality of it is doesn't a feel stunning like an insult. a stunning yeah. ind- indictment of just how good this record is really mm. um mm. it's a beautiful song it's really really lovely um i if you don't mind, I really think it's vital that we talk about if white America told the truth for one day its world would four apart. I think it's vital we talk about that song Yeah, just because it's fucking great. <laughs> really, I don't have anything to say on it, it but it's fucking, fucking great. Well,
0: it's fucking great. And it's interesting because it appears to be really – well, it doesn't appear to be. It is a sort of dissection of their – how much they they were turning around and being like, Fuck American culture! Like after being sort of Guns and Roses and Public Enemy and you know the whole glam thing that they had picked up on before, and now this sort of—it's funny how you know we we talk about Britpop and how Britpop was like fuck America, Britain's great—and actually this does that with Public Image Limited and The Cure and uh, Gang of Four, and it, it, it's mm. not taking the Kinks and the Who and and the Beatles like. Britpop was it's taken something completely it's taken a different influence but it is still going no 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 we need to kind of reclaim our Britishness Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. whereas uh, you know although they've Nicky Wire has said that If White America is not a completely anti-American song, but it was about the most empty culture in the world dominating the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So they clearly could see the sort of the emptiness. And I think there's an an awful lot of disdain towards America. And that whole thing that we spoke about in the Blur special, which you have to wait for. So I'll I'll paraphrase it here um, about how the worst aspects of american culture were starting to, do- to 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 overthrow and it's not even really american culture i think it's consumerist culture which america mm, just yeah. happens to to do very very well it, um, it
1: just just happens to embrace american culture yeah. It happens to embrace that consumerist culture the kind culture. of the
0: globalization of american mm, kind of franchises yeah. and consumerism had yeah. become something which really i mean it started to obviously go get big in the 80s but was really dominant by the the sort of late 80s to the early 90s and
1: well that's something that's more prescient these days than it was back then as well because um, uh, obviously in the um, east um, the East as a whole, I've speaking very, very general here, so apologies for that. But, but you know, the East was one of the last to embrace American culture, but it feels like the majority of the East has now embraced a lot of that American culture as well. Um, now, I'm sure there are examples where that's not the case. Uh, I've not been Far East very much <laughs> in my life, but but e- even even there, I remember going to this isn't far east but i remember going to um hypha uh when i was oh I got 12 let's say um and just being stunned at the amount of uh mcdonald's that were around and stuff like that you know Mm. it's everywhere it's everywhere um um i love some of the couplets in I, i think i think there's um some of the best couplets on the record are on, are on here. There's not enough black in the Union Jack. There's too much white in the Stars and Stripes, or if there isn't mm-hmm. enough white in the Stars and Stripes. There ain't enough white in the Stars and Stripes, I should say. I love uh, If God Made Man. They say Sam Colt Made Him Equal referring yeah. to referring to sam Colt, the maker of the Colt 45 and other guns uh not that i'm an expert on guns uh Sapruda, the first to masturbate the world's first taste of crucified grace i think is brilliant mm. i love tipper free...
0: was a friend of mine yeah personal, cool groovy morning
1: fine tipper gore was a friend of mine is brilliant i love mm. a free country the stars and stripes and an apple for mummy i love the fucking The sarcasm almost in this yeah. song. I, lo- I love it it's brilliant it's arch. such a good song the art yeah yeah, yeah they're like they're like oh this We're so fucking it, great aren't we it, i love what, it what i like about that
0: this song uh, is that it looks at america and it goes look at all that trite nasty shit that they've got those idiots but then it also goes and but yet yeah, we're still buying but, it but we yeah idiots. exactly exactly yeah. it's
1: not it's as you say it's not just anti-america it, mm. it it is it is looking at sort of the world as a whole and going but we're buying into it as well and also i love the fact that um you know america i don't think ever got manix in the same way that we did here but um I can imagine an American singing these lyrics singing along in a proud sort of way and totally misinterpreting it. There isn't a single line on here which is it's all so sarcastic that you could mm. sing this and think that it you could you could misinterpret this completely as pro american It could mm. almost be the you know sung as the new American national anthem uh, well
0: it's' particularly interesting when you consider that um that sort of uh that that interpretation of america i mean when we get to the next part when we start talking about everything must go and the mentions to america and the way america is spoken about on everything must go is i i think just using that as a juxtaposition between those two albums is as telling as pretty much anything but that is for a few hours time so you know do come back for that um but yes, I mean, that's pretty much most of the songs, um, if not all of the songs on the record. It's not quite all of the songs, but... Um,
1: we, I feel like we could do all of them, but we probably mm. should move on, yeah, we we? should we? Yeah, I mean, we should probably move on. It feels bad not to cover Mausoleum or Die in the Summertime mm-hmm. uh, in, in detail particularly, but yeah, we should probably move on.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the album was released on the 30th of August, 1994. It peaked at number six on the UK album chart. It has now, at time of recording, sold 600,000 copies. Um, that is um, uh, 100,000 copies in the UK. The only other country that it charted is in Japan, where it reached number 50. Um, so The Enemy gave it 9 out of 10. Uh, it said, in fact, this is almost a case of savagery over content. Strip away the mutilation, the hospitalization, the prostitution, the sneers, the rumours, and yeah, Richie himself, and you're left with an exhausting, aggressive stab at the kind of crunching spittle predicted um perfected by, say, compulsion. Do you remember compulsion? They're quite good. Um an, an Irish punk band who all used to dye their hair sort of duracell battery orange um, oh, good band. Right. uh conversely take the holy bible and its twisted poetry it's alienating samples as one whopping despairing deep dark hole and you too will end up sitting slumped staring at the wall remembering kurt cobain and his bilious acid scarred guts the holy bible oh christ indeed uh q gave it four yeah, out that, of five just
1: quickly is that referring to the band u2 or is that referring to you as well uh, you as well right because yeah. <laughs> yeah. i did i did interpret it as you too oh, really? i was okay. like no, wh- no. why are you saying that
0: <laughs> mm. yeah um q gave it four out of five karan gave it four k's and said it was no pleasure cruise the holy bible comes without the bloated big rock overtones of the band's last offering or the more disposable fillers of the first it's the most complete album the manics have made so far don't go fucking up on us now Uh, (laughs) NME put it at number five in their end of year list. Metal Hammer put it at number nine at their end of year list. Kerrang! had it at number 14 at their end of year list. Um, It was given 8.4 in Pitchfork um, years later when it was finally um, reissued and the American version came out. Uh, Melody Maker ranked it at number 15 in its 100 Best Albums Ever list in the year 2000. Kerrang! placed it 10th. In its uh, 2005 list uh, of the greatest British albums ever made. Q ranked it number 18 in the list of the greatest albums ever in 2003. And the Enemy ranked it at number one on the darkest albums ever in 2011. And it was number 44 in their list of the greatest albums ever made in 2013. So overall, um, you know, I do feel like it was well received, I think well-received critically, maybe still they weren't, you know, I mean, they weren't going to be as big as they were on Generation Terror or they wanted to be on Generation Terrorist, that whole 16 million album sales. Mm. And, you know, that 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 idea obviously had gone for them at that time. Um, I think back to Nicky saying, you know, we needed the freedom of commercial failure. And although this album sold 600,000 copies, I mean, in comparison to... How many some of their other records would have sold? It's not a massive amount, really. Not a massive very, amount.
1: I, I I was going to say that seems really small. Uh, well, obviously, mm. so, I mean, I'd be delighted to sell six hundred thousand copies of anything. Yeah, of course. But, um, but 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 yeah, compared to some of the some, what they did later on, that seems. I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like this isn't a record for everyone. There's a no. there's an awful lot of people ironically the fans that they attracted with the next album you know not to jump into it too much but oh we're going there mate don't worry about that okay i think there's a yeah i think (laughs) i think there's an awful lot of people where a lot of the stuff on this album would have gone over their heads or they just wouldn't have even bothered to dive enough to interpret some of that that stuff
0: well, it's like we say, it's very, very hard to know where to place this record yeah. because even an album like, I mean, Trouble Gum is not a Britpop album and it's not a metal album either, but mm. it's a very, very catchy rock album. And that's not a very happy record either, is it? Trouble Gum, which came out uh, this year and it was Kerrang's no. album of the year. You know, um, Super Unknown by Soundgarden was Metal Hammer's album of the year. And that's not a very happy record. As I said, no. Not a very happy year, not a very uplifting year, but still, Soundgarden were grunge and Therapy were, you know, linked enough to the metal crowd or the upcoming kind of wave of punk from Offspring and Green Day that, you know, would mean that people kind of got it. I'm not sure, yeah. I'm not sure who's getting this, particularly in the NME lot as well, when they're, you know, their album of the year is. Um, probably park life i can't remember uh i can't be bothered to look it up but it wouldn't have been something like this at all i'm sure
1: yeah i mean goodness goodness how one would choose park life over this although our park life special hasn't come out so i shouldn't say that but uh (laughs) yes uh wow um but yes it's exactly what i said um earlier in this uh podcast um it it's a bubble in and of itself it's a world in and of itself it's like i almost imagine if you were looking at albums from space, it's like this album's been put into the Eden Project so that it can be kind of siphoned off and um, not allow, like, th- so that it, its rhetoric won't bleed into other records and kind of dest- destroy the innocence of other albums. Mm. It's, um, it's just a completely and utterly, uh, sorry to sound um, like a sort of businessman here, but it is a completely a complete and utterly unique product. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's
0: just... When the 10th anniversary uh, came out, Stylus magazine um, said, The Holy Bible is easily one of the best albums of the 90s, ignored by many but loved intensely by the few who live with it over the years. It puts everything the Manics have done to sh- since to shame, not to mention nearly everything else in music. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about how much it puts the rest of the Manics back catalogue, particularly the next album we're going to talk about, to shame um, when we get into it. But... Certainly, you're right in saying that. And and it is one of those records that, you know, I found from from as soon as I got it and I started getting into it, as someone who'd already had Everything Must Go and already had, and then got Generation Terrorist and then got this. Once I got this, I was just like, oh my fucking God. As great as everything else is, this is just, like you say, it's an island and it's not like, it's not just like anything else the Mannix have ever done. It's not like anything anyone's ever done. Mm. Ever. Ever mm. before or since. Mm. There yeah. are so few records that are comparable to this. Well, um, I can't I really think Can you think of any? The... <sighs> I'm gonna try at the end. Okay. But not there aren't many.
1: No. There aren't many. Um for for the record, I can't think of any, and I'm very curious to hear that what you mm. you know, what you come up with, but
0: <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um so the band went out on tour with both suede and therapy again where the fuck do you sit mm. <laughs> like mm. you're touring with suede and you're touring with therapy they played the other stage at glastonbury um which with richie which if you get a chance to see um to see uh that footage it's it's really good uh they start with that hello hello Hello, that Public Image Limited do at the start of one of their very, very famous records. I think the start of Metal Box, I think. Um, uh, is it? Oh, I've not listened to Pill for fucking ages, but that yeah. Hello, Hello, like James says that at the start of Faster, uh, which was a nice little nod to mm-hmm. um, the influences for this record. And um, then they played Reading and Tea in the Park without Ritchie. Ritchie had to be admitted to the Priory um, due to his kind of what well, his his various problems um, mm. he didn't want a tour and um, they went out and played reddin reddin 94 is really interesting if you watch them playing, as a three-piece. you Did you watch the footage from Reading 94? Have you ever seen any of the footage? No. I, I, don't, th- I, don't, think
1: I, I don't think I knew that they had to play without Ritchie for Reading. I didn't yeah. Remember, so
0: so um, James said, I felt very nervous going out there because it was the first time we'd done a gig without Ritchie. Um, Nicky says they had to do the gig because it was going to pay for Ritchie's treatment at the Priory. Um, James said, a bunch of the audience just looked on the right-hand side of the stage, the kind of cult of Ritchie, and refused to even acknowledge the rest of the band. So they just stared at a blank space in the on on the corner of the stage. Um, I'm sure we'll get you, into it
1: later. I'm sure we'll get into it later. But the cult of Richie is disturbing yeah. and fascinating in equal measure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Mickey Wire, after two songs, said from the stage, "Have all of these shit indie bands put you cunts to sleep or something?" <laughs> just a cursory look. <laughs> just a cursory look at the lineup from Reading '94. Mm. And I was like, oh, my fucking god! This is the lineup for Reading '94—the shit indie bands he's talking about. Headliners were Primal Screen, mm. sub-headliner Ice Cube, mm. then The Manics, then Radiohead, then Pulp, then Television." Mate, sounds like a good day to me. A fucking day
1: that is. But they admitted, how great is that? I remember seeing in one of the documentaries I saw Nicky Wire just sort of admitting we just fucking hated everyone, and we just thought we were better than everyone. Mm. And um, I mean, you know, were they better than everyone? No. I, this was a good, this was a fucking great period for music. You know, I I, I don't agree with, and uh, to be honest, I don't think Nicky Wire thinks that now. I think he he says that as someone looking back on how they felt at the time, but they were very antagonistic towards all other bands basically um yeah. they just thought they were all shit um <laughs> which is you know just youth talking isn't it um it is really but yeah. but, but but yeah uh th- th- whilst i don't i whilst i wouldn't go as far as to say they were better than everyone else they were certainly the, that thing that we keep talking about about how this album in particular was a, an island onto its own they were certainly <laughs> they stood out amongst everyone else which doesn't they necessarily did. mean you're better but they stood out definitely
0: yeah so i guess you know the aftermath really uh, it's kind of obvious where we go with the aftermath um one of their fans and one of the documentaries i watched said some people think elvis is still alive richie being alive is far more feasible um the start of the holy bible i I, I can't
1: argue with that but it's still not no no i can't yeah yeah yeah
0: um the band headed to Thailand. And this is where the cult of Richie really began yeah. to sort of spiral out of control. A mm. fan bought some knives and asked him to cut himself with them for me. Um, mm. James said that the tour was awful. Well, they all said that the tour was awful. Um, James said, as soon as we left Thailand, it was like, a, we had a bug that we couldn't shake off. The cult of Richie a destructive personality was crystallized there. Nikki said, I felt like something was going out of control. Um, Terry Hall, the band's publicist and Philip Hall's widow, um, said that she spoke to Richie a bunch of times and said to him, if you don't like it, leave. Just Mm, leave. mm. You don't have to do this. Just leave. And he said he felt trapped because being an ex-member of the Manic Street Preachers walking around Cardiff just was not glamorous enough a lifestyle for him. Mm. Um, So when it all kind of comes to a head, I guess, really – is um, the gigs at the Astoria? So the band ended 1994, playing a three night residency at the London, the now defunct, the sorely missed London mm. Astoria, which we obviously talk about quite a lot. Um, mm. uh, with Richie back in the band, supported by the Chemical Brothers. Oh, who were pelted <laughs> with stuff every night by all accounts. Well, they um, are shit, so fair enough. Uh, come on, um, <laughs> Nikki's. <laughs> Nikki Wire says it was miserable. It was peak richie weirdness. Everything was very edgy. The last three minutes we smashed up twenty-three grand of equipment. It felt like a full stop. James said we were turned up so loud during sound checks and getting really paranoid, thinking that one of us was gonna have a brain hemorrhage because they kept getting nosebleeds from the monitors. So there was something yeah. wrong with the sound that was giving them nosebleeds every night. Um and Nikki said, we had all these nosebees. On the last night, we just trashed everything. They didn't plan to do it. They didn't do it on the other two nights. No. They just said, you know, something is a full stop. They, said they basically bankrupted themselves by doing that and went home thinking that something had changed. They did £26,000 worth of damage on that last
1: night. You can tell by the footage that it wasn't planned. It's like yeah. a pressure valve being released. It's... um." Yeah yeah it's it wasn't planned
0: yeah so i mean those were their last gigs with richie and you know as you said you can go and watch that footage on youtube and if you're interested in in seeing a band actually smashing their equipment up for real then (laughs) not not billy joe armstrong being handed his you know 50 dollar to guitar that the, his roadie has bought from that day to smash up at this exact point that he has to smash the guitar up like the this is a band actually smashing their uh, instruments and their equipment and everything they own to fucking smithereens um and then uh, yeah and that was the end of 1994 for the Mount Street Breaches. um They rehearsed in Surrey for five days at the start of 1995. um, And they said it was a much improved uh, atmosphere between the four of them. Um, Mm. Yeah, it's very bittersweet. Yeah, they actually started on some new songs Mm. as well. Um, One of the things that we'll talk about, which is kind of a myth, is that Design for Life was the first attempt that they made for writing new material post the Holy Bible. But actually there is um, mm. evidence to suggest that that's not the case, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but um, Richie bought everybody presents, uh, chocolate magazines, and they just thought he was in a much better mood. And um, in the middle of February, they were due to fly out to America uh, where the record was yet to have been released. Um, so they went to the NBC hotel in London and, um, and they were due to fly out on the morning of the 1st of February. Um, James went down to the lobby. Richie wasn't there. They called his room. He didn't answer his phone. Um, James was told to go ahead and go to America. And they were going to put Richie on the next flight. Um, Martin Hall, who, uh, as I said, is, is Philip Hall's brother, um Went to the hotel to try and find Richie, just thinking that he'd met a girl the night before or he'd been out Mm. somewhere partying or drinking or he'd overslept or you know what I mean. They went into the hotel room, saw a box, a shoebox with I Love You written on top of it with a load of little notes and some more presents and bits and bobs inside it. A bath that was fully run and all of Richie's stuff was gone as well. So he just sort of sat there and waited for a bit. They waited and waited Um and obviously, Richie Edwards never returned. Um, Sean says, we didn't think anything serious had happened. We just thought he needed to get away. But then his parents let us into his flat and his passport was still there with all of his clothes. Nicky said, I rushed down to his flat and I'd missed him by a few hours. I didn't find out he was gone till one o'clock. James said, "I wouldn't say I was blasé about it, but I thought there'd be a happy ending. After two weeks, it started to sink in. There was a certain numbness after that. His car was found close to the Seven Bridge, which is a notorious suicide spot. A few days later, um,
1: as a quick aside, he was 27 uh, years old. Sorry, just as a quick aside, there. I I used to live a 10 minute. I grew up a 10 minute drive from the Seven Bridge. Um, and a few times." when my um when friends of mine sort of learned how to drive you know when you learn to drive you just want to drive everywhere all the time um we've gone to the seven bridge and just listened to this album and it's really a sobering interesting thing to do i've done that half a dozen times um Mm. yeah weird but yes sorry sorry he was 27 years old yeah yeah
0: Yeah. 27 years old um as are many people Mm. that we talk about in music in quite sort of hushed tones. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting that Nicky Wyatt said about it is uh, I, I think what people miss is that he was in a Vauxhall Cavalier. It was far more Reggie Perrin than Lord Lucan. People think of it as this incredibly glamorous um, rock and roll mm. story. And, you know, and I did when I was a kid. Mm. I kind of mm. did. I thought the whole thing about it was, I'd never say I had fantasies about running away or disappearing or anything, but the whole thing, I couldn't help but be intrigued by it. And it just fed more and more into the the story about this guy. And it, I think it made people love him even more. Well, living um, so
1: close to, you know, where the last remnants of him were found, that, you know, we would sort of just sort of sit there and sort of stare at the bridge and just be like it'd be like almost daydream about finding him like and like like i wasn't even like i i like the manic street preachers a lot but they're not like they wouldn't be in like my top 20 bands of all time or anything like that you know but there was just there was something there was something about the allure or the mystique of it the um the non-closure of someone going missing rather than them definitely passing away. Mm. Uh, I I don't, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah.
0: I I think the band themselves, they say, you know, when it was reported on the news, they were, you know, they thought it was bad that it was being reported as a suicide. Yes. Nobody knows if it's a suicide and you're right, you know, for years and years and years, I, I, you know, I read every book, I read every article. I went back and tried to find. I was going to libraries and stuff. I was, you know, what I mean? I became like, I wonder if I could find this guy. Like, sort of like you say, fantasizing about finding mm. this guy and being like, I'm the guy who got the Manic Street Preachers back together. And
1: we should point out, I mean, as well especially that, when that you he, get
0: kind of three albums into their, like, three albums after this, when I'm like, oh, they're crap now, and I go mm. back to his albums and go, why can't he come back? Why, mm. why? Just come mm. back and save them, you know. Mm.
1: I mean, he wasn't officially um, uh, uh, announced as dead until 2008. So that's a long old time to have that kind of open. And I remember um, Nicky Wire said that sort of the first three, four months in particular were particularly tough because every missed call, every knock on the door, every, you know, you just assume oh, it's going to be something to do with Richie. And of course, you know, back then, no mobile phones, or, you know, people didn't have access to mobile phones. If you get a mixed, missed call, you dial 1471 to find out what the number mm-hmm. is. And if if it's a number you don't recognise, he would just be like, oh my God, that could have been Richie, you know? And like, that must have yeah. been torturous. I can only imagine. And as I yeah. say, it's that, it's that non-closure thing. There's
0: a quote in the John Cleese film, Clockwise from the 80s right. i don't know if you know this film i i know um, it i didn't expect a, we'd
1: be going there but yep <laughs> john cleese
0: plays a teacher who has to get to a conference and loads of like things happen to stop him from getting there and I, I don't want to kind of turn this again into a facetious thing but he says there's a line in it which i always thought was really funny that where he says it's not the despair that i can't cope with i can cope with the despair it's the hope
1: mm. That's and I think, brilliant. Yeah.
0: And I think that's um that's what it is. It's that little tiny thing that you hold on to. Mm. And I think everybody, whether it's you know, some people might expect Lord Lucan to walk through the door. Uh, you know, Kate and Jerry McCann probably want to see their daughter walk through mm. the door one day. Mm. They won't mm. ever be able to reconcile that until yeah. they do. Yeah. You know. Um it's worse, when
1: there, it's worse when there isn't a body, basically, isn't
0: it? We'll talk about this more in the second part when, okay. when it comes
1: to... I mean, there, there is that
0: quote that I told you about the other day from something which I thought was quite Oh good, yes. but I'm going to yes, save yes, that yes. For the second part. Mm. Patreon.com forward slash right now podcast. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the band, you know, that is... <laughs> The Holy Bible now takes on even greater significance as a record because everything that it stands for, everything that it says, it feels much like in utero, feels realer. It, it kind of crystallizes how, you know, for, for a guy who had to cut for real into his arm to prove to people that he wasn't bullshitting them. Uh, or he felt he did anyway, quite, yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite a magnificent statement in a lot of ways on a purely artistic level. I do think what an absolutely magnificent statement to be like that album with all that stuff. Now you believe me, don't you? Now you do, believe me. Do you um, understand where Steve yeah. Lemack
1: was coming from, though, when he um, asked that? Because to, I, I think sometimes it's painted as Steve Lemack was just like, oh, you guys are phonies, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't quite that, was it? He... he asked it in a far less antagonistic way than that. It was something along the lines of, I can see how some of the things you do, some people might interpret as not being very, very for real, you know, and hence, and and as Richie was talking to Steve Lamac about it, he just started idly carving for real into his arm. But I can actually, I I, I do, I think if I was a journalist and I was there at that time, um, when Steve LeBac asked that question, I, th- I think it's a, I think it was a legitimate question. To be honest with you, I think there are things yeah. that appeared really OTT and a bit s- silly about Manix um, pre this record. It didn't seem very silly once this album came out, and obviously once um, he disappeared. No, no, exactly. But, I mean, but that I is can...
0: pro- I mean, however, it, however, it was interpreted by Richie what Steve Lemack said, mm, I mean, he yeah. certainly would have, sh- they, sh- they shut everybody up, basically. Yeah,
1: but as an outsider looking in, I can understand where Steve Lamax was coming from when he asked that question. Uh, but when you look at yeah. Generation Terrorists and Gold Against the Soul era, do you know the, the time? Do you know, when did he? It was Generation Terrorists. Was gen- yeah, well, particularly with Generation Terrorists, then to be honest. I mean, coming out in the press and saying, we're going to sell... 26 million copies of our record or whatever it is and then we're going to split up and we've got 18 songs on our album because it's the only album we're ever going to write and we're going to be the biggest band of all time i mean that stuff looks even even considering how successful look because that record didn't get anywhere near the success that they wanted it to but it did uh, enormously well considering it was a yeah. debut and all that sort of thing um i think it sold around four million copies i don't know we're not talking about generation terrorists but it's it did incredibly well um but that stuff does seem ridiculous i mean it's laughable really and it, yeah, and, it's, it is, and, it's, yeah. and it's and it's and it comes from um a place of youth a place of ignorance a place of you know that i i i i, I some people paint lamac as um a terrible figure for, for for asking that and for saying that generation Terrorist er, er, era i think it's an absolutely valid question absolutely valid
0: yeah i think it is um people have to yeah people have to ask those questions, don't they yeah, they have yeah. to they have to be allowed to um to ask those questions for sure um and I think it was yeah, I think it's <laughs> you know a perfectly as you said a perfectly legitimate thing to ask yeah uh, no one ever could have at that time you know he probably wouldn't have asked it if he'd have known what they were going to go on to do,
1: no. I don't think anyone would have asked it if I mean anyone who has any sort of common sense or or isn't a twat wouldn't have asked it if they'd known what he was going to do. But I think this is the thing I think he's painted in in a bad light because 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 of what people know after the fact. I'm just Mm -hmm. I'm just defending Lamar because I don't think at the time he I totally understand why he would have asked that question at that time. Yeah. they they were at the time they were a preposterous band round generation terrorists let's face it I, I don't i don't that i don't mean that I, I, I to sound as as critical as it may may do but they were they were a totally preposterous preposterous band and i love generation terrorists don't get me wrong but they were a ridiculous ridiculous band what on earth would you you know they weren't a million miles off what people would interpret of Towers of London kind of stuff. I mean, they were 10 billion times better, but ter- yeah, certainly in terms of the look and what they would the, the glam esqueness and frankly, their kind of blasé attitude to things, they weren't a million miles off of that sort of thing. So yeah, totally legitimate question.
0: Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, uh, so that is the kind of full stop on Richie's mm, mm, mm. Manic Street Preacher's group, which we will, in the second half, what happened kind of in the aftermath of him going and how they dealt with that. We will talk about that for sure. But I think we should probably fast forward 10 years after the release of the record, um, talking about the record's aftermath, and talk about the 10th anniversary reissue, which is fucking amazing, by the way, um, which came with something called the US mix of the album. Now, it was never actually released in the united states back in the day uh, so this really should have been called the canadian mix of the album where it was released but it was released by um remixed by somebody called tom lord algy uh tom i love uh,
1: reverb algae, i think his name is actually yeah
0: um <laughs> the band I think it is the superior version of the record uh james said we got somebody to mix the album um and uh he made it sound like sometimes he made it sound like marilyn manson he compared some of it to which no. Sounds a bit weird. Uh, we got something back from the... <laughs> no. He said, it was the first time we got something back from the record label that we didn't despise. They requested to mix it. We went, here we go. We'll just tell them that we hate it and it came back brilliant. Uh, Nicky Wire said, it made it more of a rock record. At least eight of eight tracks of it is a modern miracle um they hated the american label they thought the american label didn't get them at all um james said we were excited about the american label for once the uk mix versus the american mix comes on a track-by-track basis for him yes pcp four stone seven pounds all sound amazing on the american mix then on the british album faster archives are paying a better because they're probably closer to their roots and the sort of stuff that they were listening to um the american record label kind of promised them that they could get these songs played on college rock, and he was like, you know, you're not an indie band, you're not a alternative, you're not a hard rock band, you're a college rock band. Um, and they suddenly felt a little bit excited about going over to America, which obviously they never got to do. Um James says Arco's a pain is better because it's closer to its roots and closer to the stuff that they were listening to.
1: I have to say On the British version. Yeah or on the Right, yeah.
0: I have to say this is my feeling for the whole thing. It's too clean. It's too rock sounding. Um it adds in little parts from from that, that just take away from the starkness of the record which I just don't really want. Uh now I know Remfry you and I have fairly different views on this. Mm. So
1: the um
0: the defense for the US remaster of this record?
1: Um well I definitely think it makes it sound like more of a more of a rock record. I agree with Nicky Wire there. Um I don't agree with you when you say it sounds cleaner. Um I think it's more in your face. The uh everything feels more up front. Um it's definitely a it is undoubtedly quote unquote a heavier mix. Um it, it's 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 really smack bang in your face there are elements of it you know i mean i said that the guy who produced it clearly likes reverb my goodness he likes reverb and there's a there's an awful lot of reverb put on the guitars and there's a few added bits and pieces here like on yes there's some whooshy sounds put on there and a bit of uh flange uh um guitar effects put on the sort of middle easterny riff uh Mm. and things like that um there are bits on revo there's a second guitar part which is playing some arpeggiated chords which just isn't on the british version you don't like that (laughs) i think i think it sounds great um and i think it's um it, it none of the very no very few of the things on the american mix um that are added for me detract from the songs the exceptions to that are the slower songs um i think she is suffering has some really weird decisions on it bearing in mind it's a song called she is suffering there's an, a sort of extended intro which has some weird spacey whooshy effects on it which are just not necessary there's some subtle intro uh, uh sorry subtle synths which are put underneath the intro and the and the in between the chorus and the verse which i just don't think are necessary there's too much reverb on james dean brad uh bradfield's vocals too much reverb on the guitar solo um fucking wayne's world yeah it it doesn't that sometimes the mix doesn't feel appropriate to the song and she is suffering as an example of that uh i think is suffering is the worst example for me yeah absolutely um by quite some distance actually but the majority and and actually as the record goes on, like when you get into kind of like die in the summertime and the intense humming of evil evil, there's very little to differentiate the two. In fact, the intense humming of evil part adds a kind of whispered sample in the chorus, which gives it quite a big nine inch nails feel, which I think is far superior to the Mm. original intense humming of evil. Um, I like the stuff. I like stuff like um, yes on the British version uh, the song fades out and on the American version, it doesn't fade out. It's actually a good sort of 20, maybe even 30 seconds longer than the British version because it does not do a fade out, uh, which I always thought is a bit of a cop out. I, d- I don't tend to like it when songs fade out on records. It, dep- it depends. I mean, sometimes it's, it's worthwhile, but I much prefer when a song actually ends rather than fades out. And um mm. You know, there are examples of uh, there's a guitar chord that rings out on the American version of If White America Told the Truth, um, which, and it's exactly the same guitar chord, but you can hear on the British version, they cut it before it starts feedbacking. And on the American version, they let it feedback, and it's rawer. It's more raw. It's more, which is why I disagree with your assessment that it's cleaner. I think the opposite. I think it's more raw. I think it's more punk. I think it's. I, I think it's. I mean, you, you definitely disagree by the face that you're pulling, but I think it's way, way more raw. It sounds more like a band playing in a room because of those things that of, of the feedback that they allow. There's no feedback on the British mix at all. Um,
0: well yeah i mean okay uh fine i mean i i think yes is better there's much better than i remember it being first time i had the u.s mix i was like what the fuck is this yeah, what the fuck is this um to, b- to guess- be fair so yes was is- i so, mm. so
1: to be fair so was i because i was so familiar with the british mix but as time has gone on um overall i've gone on to prefer the american mix yeah overall. really fucking hell
0: um, overall
1: yeah I, the, the, uh, bar the odds exception like she is suffering and so on and so forth uh, faster i think is better on the british version as well um but if i were uh, making oh oh all right, but if I were making my perfect mix of this record um, between the two, it would probably be like nine American to four British, something like that.
0: Okay. Yes, it's far better than I remember. Um, I, that is one of the ones that I think does work quite well and I agree yeah, that kind of not sorry. having a fade out is good. White yeah. America pre-chorus is way too fucking busy. Way too busy. The flange on the chorus, I don't know why you'd do that too much. Archives yeah, of Pain, yeah, yeah. I love the, the snare sound from sean that pops out is like a punch yeah. in archives of pain i yeah. think it's really good it's in the verses uh, that's to me what the song should be yeah. but then so so the,
1: much reverb on that pre chorus on archives of pain though as well <laughs> yeah like, um, the, the chorus
0: just softens everything on the us mix for me it flows mm. easier it makes everything mm. easier to listen to what you just said about the feedback coming in it, there's so much in this record where shit just cuts and then changes the American record, the American mix of it, I think, tries to make everything flow nicely. And I'm sorry, just I mean, she is suffering. Uh, I'm just no. I mean, that is. I I
1: agree with she. It's suffering, crap. Yeah. That
0: is that is the the biggest culprit on the record by far. Yeah, um, yeah. The 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 ravel with the the little guitar line under it that wasn't in the original. Again, mm. I mean, it just. That's a robotic, stark sounding song, and it just makes it more like a kind of US rock song. It sounds far less it's, individualistic.
1: It's quite, it's quite subtle, though. It's very subtle. Yeah, like you, that can second it. you can still of course hear it. You can still hear it. And, but...
0: and there's there's less snarl and there's less bleed on the guitars from the original. Um, mm. Four stone seven pounds actually is much better than I recall, but I still prefer the original. It's got um, more
1: guitar licks on it, the four stone seven, the American version, which I like. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah it's much better than i remember
0: but i think it kind of gets away with it but Um, i will say
1: i will say on four stone seven pounds when james dean bradfield sings just look at the fat scum who pamper me so for some reason they made the so go so 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 and i don't Mm -hmm. know why they did that that is lame as fuck yeah
0: um mausoleum the the chorus on the original stops and then starts again, and it's fucking jarring. The US one, the guitars just bl- kind of blend into each other, and it's way less jarring. Faster for me, right? James's vocal sits so far. That should be "I am an architect," and it's yeah. not. It's "I am an architect." With the guitar, the guitars smother that song and engulf another, them, and he sits another, too far back in the mix.
1: Another bizarre choice on the American mix, I will admit. With faster, is. Um, there is reverb on every other line of the first verse so there's re Mm. the reason the reason why it sits back is because the amount of reverb it's drenched in uh so for i am an architect i am a pioneer and i am purity it's just drenched in reverb it's like that's an odd choice like to have reverb on an entire verse sure but to to Turn it on for one line, then turn it off for the next, then turn it on. It's it's a bizarre choice. I, I'll I'll yeah agree with that. So I I mean uh,
0: the after sheer suffering, uh, this is yesterday. I don't want fucking Eddie Van Halen turning up in the fucking mm-hmm. solo towards mm-hmm. the end. Yeah, fuck agree off. With that. Yeah. Um, but PCP's actually really good. I think I don't PCP's think great. I don't think the gap between the gruffness of the verses and the massive chorus is as pronounced as it is in the British mix. I think it sits more in one place, which is why I still think the British version is, is better. But it's still, it sounds massive. And I think actually the backing vocals at the end, I'm not going to lie, are really good. Mm-hmm. With The way mm-hmm. they kind of pronounce the backing vocals at the end are really good. Um, but for me, right, this record should be as... When you mention... When we talk about... Hill and Wire and Gang of Four and the sort of influences of those bands on it. Like, that to me is what this record should sound like. And the US version, it just seems like it has been mixed by someone who doesn't know what that stuff is
1: mm.
0: and just makes wants to make them go, oh, well, the Smashing Pumpkins are big, so you'll be like that. And it's like, well, I don't think... This, mm. I don't think that's what this record is. I mean, when we, we t- you know, you mentioned sort of Alice in Chains. You said, oh, there is a bit of that American kind of slash and Alice in Chains and, you know, Pantera um, and all these things that we mentioned. But really, I mean, really, this is far more of a post-punk record with a little bit of then uh, of what they used to be. Um, but it's still, it's so different from what they were before. And I think, the for me, the US mix just absolutely seems to not really understand what record it is it is playing with. And I, I get it. Like, that's what's going to fly in America. That is what it needed to... It would have needed to sound like for it to make any kind of, you know, sort of um, dent in the American chart. And that's what they had to do with it. And that's what they wanted to do with it. And I know the band look at it down the line and go, oh, no, you know, this is much better. But I think... The reason why I'm going to turn around and go, no, I'm sorry, Manic Street Preachers, you're wrong, is because I think they probably, when they got the US version back, they probably heard it and they went, okay, cool. Um, Maybe this isn't as horrible a record as (laughs) we might have imagined. I think they were probably scared of the record that they were about to put out. And hearing a much more, you know, a, a, a much more digestible version of it probably made them go, all right, cool. Well, actually, it's not completely... Unrelatable, and it's not completely like we're not as much of an island. This record I, is an I island. Don't,
1: I don't think this mix is more digestible at all. I, oh, I don't. Is, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it on. is at all. And I also, um I massively counter what you're saying about this record is meant to sound like you know those post-punk influences. I, earlier on in, on this um, podcast, I said something that is so brilliant about this record is that it mixes those post-punk influences with the Guns N' Roses and um, Alice and Chains pomp. Uh, that's Pomp is is closer to Guns N' Roses than Alice and Chains, but you know what I mean, um, uh, which is something which is really unique and hasn't really been done before. And the American mix brings that out even more than the British mix does. And you can sit there and go... This album is meant to sound like a post-punk record, but actually, it's better when it's mixing the two. That's my total counter. But to I don't it. think
0: I, it does mix. I, I think it strips it completely of the more unique, like the Alice in Chains and Guns and Roses um, part of this record is not the mo- the more unique part of it. The more unique part of it is the very British post-punk '80s sort of a, a big room sound of it, like that I, kind I, of wiry, I, and that wiry Stark part of it. I, and think, I think if you I lose think that, that you'd, you lose the more unique thing.
1: I think the unique thing is the mix, the mix of the two. And, and, and the American mix brings out the mix of the two more than the British does as a I whole. Think
0: the, I think the American mix squashes the, post, the, the Britishness of it, squashes the British post-punk elements.
1: It's interesting you were using words like squashes because because it sounds so much bigger the American mix. Yeah, it sounds so much bigger. Those albums
0: don't sound aren't aren't meant to sound that big. They're not meant to sound like Mm. that. Like you know, Gang of Four are not meant to sound like they should be played in a stadium.
1: According to who though? I I, I mean, I mean themselves. Those 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 those
0: influences. That's what that's what those records sound like. You know, Joy Division don't. They just don't. I mean, I'm not saying that these. I mean, the good thing about these is, is like they may, they manage to make those songs. Those songs stand up enough on their own, and I think they're they're far more unique by being those songs, but yet being produced in the kind of raw, stark, cold, wiry way in which the British mix gives them. And I think the U.S. mix just takes a bunch of stuff. That was popular in U.S. college rock at the time, and adds that to it. And yes, you could go; it makes it more unique, and it makes it makes it more. It, it's different; it sounds different to the original, and it's not really one thing. And it, you know, but but to me, it just it squashes so much that was really unique about the
1: record. I think because I don't rest- think
0: the flange and smell and sounding like a bit like Smashing Pumpkins. I don't think in 1994 that's a particularly unique selling point i think sounding like i think sounding like fucking wire and public image limited is though
1: i think the rhetoric you're using stifles creativity rather than makes it blossom and it's it's a similar rhetoric to to those old school metal heads who kind of say metal is meant to be like this it's meant to sound like this i think as a result of the american mix you get something which is Um, I mean we obviously disagree on this and that's fine but I think the the, the uniqueness of it the unique elements of it are brought to the fore even more. Not because a flange effect is a unique thing to use, because it pfft, certainly fucking isn't. Uh, reverb, especially around this time, is not a unique thing to use at all. But the combination of those elements make it makes it sound unique to me. And I think I think I think when you use rhetoric, which is like it's not meant to sound like that. Well, according to who? I, I mean, you know, yeah, I understand what you're saying according to the bands, but like rules are meant to be broken. That's where you get great creativity it's, from. It's not.
0: I don't think it's creative to copy everyone else.
1: I don't think it is copying everything <laughs> that,
0: else. That, that's just copy. What you've just said is just, oh, let's make it sound like everyone else from the 90s. That's not no, stifling no, creativity. No, I, I, that's I not don't, stifling creativity. What you're saying to me is, th- is that by being influenced by, uh, and making a record which is brutal and stark and bare and unflinching, and trying to sort of pretty it up. It just doesn't like I don't want that. I don't but we, who would we, want We disagree, needs that record to sound like that.
1: But we disagree on it being prettied up. I don't think it is prettied up. I think it's made more raw. Uh, and and my my examples of that are are the starkness of the feedback used. You know, your your argument for it running into each other more, I totally agree, but I see that as a positive. I like the fact that the guitar chords that rings out from if white america told the truth rings into of walking abortion it makes it sound more of a piece uh it makes the record sound more of a piece of a of a of a complete piece rather than these you said it yourself these stop start sections between songs and so on and so forth i mean you know this entire conversation I don't think anyone's argued as as vehemently about either mix as we have on on, on just now but it is interesting because there is clearly, I think this conversation proves that there is clearly an argument for both mixes, there's clearly an argument for for either or Um, and I accept that most people are going to prefer the British version because it's the one that they're most familiar with and people don't tend to like change. And like, like I say, when I bought the 10th anniversary edition of this record and uh, heard the American mix, my initial reaction was like, uh, what are you doing to this record that I love? But over the years, I've come to really appreciate the American um, mix for, for bringing out elements of it that... I suppose by putting elements onto it that aren't unique, it brings out the uniqueness of the record. Again, juxtaposition—that um, uh, sounds almost like a hypocritical thing to say—but then Manics are just full of juxtaposition and hypocritical things in, in many ways, and I think it just shows why this is such an interesting band and such an interesting record. I, I totally get your points, and I agree with many of them. But and I, I well agree. I understand where you're coming from with many of them. But,
0: um, yeah. Well, I put a poll up on Twitter just before we started this. Um, We got 94 votes, which is the better, the original, the US mix. It was quite a a landslide um, Mm. for the original, 90%. Prefer the original mix. Only ten percent prefer the US mix. I presume you were one of the ten percent who voted for that, Renfrey, or did you not? I didn't. I didn't, I didn't vote. I, I didn't get involved.
1: Okay. But I yeah. think, um, I, I mean, uh, for reasons that I've just said, that's hardly surprising. Because a lot yeah. of people, a lot of people will, will be familiar with the British mix. They'll, um, they'll listen to the American mix and and go, ugh, I don't like that. I'm not familiar with that, and probably never go back to it um but I, and that's understandable i get that like what why do you want to fuck with something that you already love you know mm. um but um but yeah uh i mean you know as as i say i think the perfect mix of this record is a combination of the two but i i personally would lean more on the american mix than i would lean on the british mix
0: so that was 10 years after um let's go 20 years after um to the 15th of december 2014 there was a lot of excitement from a lot of people when the Manchester Street Preachers announced that they would be playing this record in full to celebrate its 20th anniversary. Both of us went to two different nights of their... How many nights did they do? Four,
1: five-night run at
0: the I th- Roundhouse?
1: I thought it was three, but, but maybe okay, it maybe was maybe more three. than that.
0: Yeah, so they did three, between three and five nights uh, at, the, at the, the Roundhouse in London where they performed the album in full. It was three. I've just looked at it. It was three. Okay. Oh, yes, it was three because I've got my review up that I did. I was working for Team Rock at the time. Uh, You might have heard me talking about it before. And I managed to get a ticket, which I actually bought, and then went, would you like me to review the gig since I'm going to be there? And they went, yeah, go on then. And I wrote a review of the gig, which I went on the first night, I think. You went on the
1: second night third night second or third, uh, second or third we w- we went different nights i know that much because I, re- I read your review yes before yeah, I yeah so
0: you did you you said this to me yesterday i was like that's quite funny yeah so i i reviewed it and i was really excited to see mm. the so max do this mm. record in full um <sighs> got my review up here <laughs> right now uh it wasn't that good was it
1: it was weird yeah it was weird, it was weird. It wasn't, no, it wasn't very good. Uh, I went the last night because um, Andy Cairns came out for You Love Us and I remember that. I'd be like, "Ah, it's Andy Cairns. Um, But yeah, uh, which obviously made it 10 times better, which means I'm the best. Um, But yes, uh, no, it was odd. And you put it, quite actually as a matter of fact um i mean i'll just repeat what i said on the phone to you yesterday what was really interesting is your review was one of the few dissenting voices because um the the papers the national press um as a whole were just glowing reviews five stars absolutely everywhere and i'm reading all these glowing reviews getting super 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 excited and i'm like oh listen i'll just um see what that uh That antagonistic man that I listen to on the Metal Hammer podcast uh, thinks about it occasionally. And you're just like, I don't like it. Uh, And I'm like, oh, he's probably just being antagonistic. I I was paraphrasing, but that was, the you know, um, and I was like, he's probably just being antagonistic. He seems like a very angry man. I don't think we knew each other at this point. And I. Uh, unfortunately i ended up agreeing with you wholeheartedly more or less and the basic premise of your review as i recall was just they are such a different band now it's almost like a tribute act doing it Uh, and like they're in such a different place and these songs demand so much of the people performing them uh it's just i mean just the whole kind of the whole idea of going back and and celebrating this time because when you do anniversary tours that's sort of that's part of what you're doing isn't it it's just it is, it's yeah. just odd it just didn't mm. work at all and weirdly i think you also said or maybe i've just made this up but this is how i feel anyway so it was split up into they did the holy bible uh, in sequence in full first of all and i have issues with uh, album shows anyway but then they did um they were on their futurology album at the time which is an album which Mm -hmm. i fucking hate um but they were doing um they then did like bits from futurology and like hits and like greatest hits sort of of thing well curios as well you know there's a few things in there which are like oh right i wouldn't have expected them to play that um and despite generally disliking that material so much more i mean i remember i was really near the front for the holy bible because i was super super excited about that and then there was a short intermission as i recall about 10 minutes yeah about yeah 10 minutes. yeah yeah and i fucked off to the back because i was like i might leave early <laughs> for this uh i didn't in the end um because they played as a design for life last and uh that is a cracking song as we'll get on to um but uh It was weird how I enjoyed the second half of the set so much more because it felt like they were them.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the basic idea of that, isn't it? It's like, why do you want to be something which isn't that good when you used to be and you seem so embarrassed by being when you used to be something that was brilliant? That was kind of my whole Mm. sort of premise of the review. It's like, yes, you're not the band who made the Holy Bible anymore. Mm. um i called it a wheezing weathered version of those astoria shows mm. is, is what my review says um the holy bible may not have aged but damn its creators and fans certainly have
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's what i said um i mean and, that is you know, that is
1: factually accurate it's factually accurate <laughs> but yeah of
0: course it is um but not know, strictly
1: what you're getting at <laughs> either yeah <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, it, they they looked so much more comfortable coming out and playing those, you know, frankly, quite crap and boring songs. But then, you know, Motorcycle Emptiness was in a set. You Love Us was in a set, you know. Um, yeah. I'm sure Latrice Tristessa was in there. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm sure it uh, was n- not on
1: not on my night. It might have been on yours. Mm, I'm
0: um, pretty sure it was on mine.
1: Um, we probably have some differences of opinion in terms of the quote unquote crap songs, but that's something that I feel like we should get into in, in part two because yeah, sure. uh, you guys like disagreement, right? And there'll be plenty <laughs> of that in part two. So uh dot com slash patreon, yeah.
0: But stuff like you know, you stole the sun from my heart, and obviously, if you tolerate this. This massive sing alongs in the audience, and I was like, mm, This isn't really why I came here. But then yeah, looking at to, them, they look so amazing much songs more as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mm, uh, but you know, they put all the kind of old military regalia on and put it for the holy yeah. Bible, and they set it all up as they would have done from you know the but with the space of Richie, and then it they lo- came back lo- on in suits and disco ball, and it was yeah, yeah. completely
1: different. Well, the first half it looks like they were dressing up and playing characters, and to be honest, not even playing them very well. To be totally honest, mm. which is which is weird. In that we talked about how James Dean Bradfield is amazing at inhabiting uh, things and views, points and so on and so forth that he may not even believe himself. Um, but not not on that night, certainly. It just didn't work at all for me. And yet the the second half of the set, which is full of material, which I'm nowhere near as, as invested in, um, I ended up really enjoying, even though they did play, in some cases, some utterly rubbish material but um i i i kind of preferred watching them play what i view as a rubbish song well than i did watching them play songs that i think are absolutely astronomically incredible badly
0: yeah i think maybe badly is harsh but just without any of the without any of the sort of drive and the power and the you know the bile and the Energy and all of that yeah. stuff it was just yeah. it was it was missing, so you know yeah, i't so i do don't,
1: I, I don't mean they were technically incompetent or anything like that that they're, they're certainly not, but yes yes exactly without without the antagonism i suppose um, that that those songs need to work mm.
0: so let's sum this up then Renfrey. that was only sort of that doesn't feel like that long ago but it was actually six years ago, but this is a classic record um for me uh there has rarely been. Such a personal, effective, brutal look at the world. Um, it seems probably way more so now because of we know about the circumstances of what happened next. Like I said, to me, this is an audio suicide note. The most anguished, hopeless, brutal dissection of modern life probably ever made in pop music. Um But the fact that these songs, these kind of hopeless, troubling, angry, torturous lyrics could be played by men on top of the pops as singles and have people singing back to them in festivals all over the world is absolutely astonishing. Um, And as much as this is a record from the mind of Richie Edwards, it's the brains and the ability of James Dean Bradfield, I think, that make this record work a brilliant musician and a brilliant personality, a professional musician and a wild card. The juxtaposition, again, I genuinely don't think there's ever been another record like it made by any band ever. I think in utero and a couple, maybe... Joy Division's back catalogue as a whole were kind of as the closer you get to it. But In Utero has some massive, like In Utero has some massive songs in it, but it doesn't ever quite have the blunt, beautifully, painfully honest, like, (laughs) you know, telling, foretelling of what was about to happen in the same way as this record does. Kurt hides a lot of stuff behind Metaphor.
1: Yeah. Also, um, also, just to throw in there quickly as well, Inutero is obviously considered a very dark record, and it is. I'm not going to say and it and say is. It. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to say it and say it isn't. Compared to the Holy Bible, it's like nursery rhymes. Yeah, and I, and I don't. I, I love Inutero. I'm not saying that. I but nah. The, the, mm. If you of the two, which is darker, there is no contest.
0: Yeah, um, but I mean, what a way to go out. If if he had to go out and it feels like he did have to go out, then this might be the most perfect execution of a rock and roll myth anyone has ever made.
1: Uh, yep. Yeah, it's 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 an astonishing record. It's been brilliant to revisit it. It's been we're, we're recording. It's generally been absolutely lovely weather at the moment, and it's been really weird listening to the Holy Bible in on a really sunny day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, again, juxtaposition. Um, but uh, God, this is an incredible record. I mean, I it, for me, and we'll probably go into this more in the next part. It, it, I love the Mannix. I think they have a <clears throat> the Manics are a band who who probably they may well be the single band who for me have released the um uh, the largest there's the largest gap between their best material and their worst material. Their best mm-hmm. material for me, I, aka this record basically, I think is absolutely transcendently incredible. But the worst Manic Street Preacher songs, I think, are some of the, probably were some of the worst music written in modern... Pop music, pop modern rock music, or modern indie music, whatever you want to say, um, you know. And actually, that's something that I fucking love about them. Um, to you know, to this day, they're what 13, 14 albums in. They're still experimenting to fuckery. I mean, I mentioned earlier there that they were on Futurology for this record, uh when they went back to um, the Holy Bible, which is a, a record that I fucking hate. I hate that record. Um, but fair play to them. The reason I hate it is because they were aping a st- a scene and a style that I've never really liked, basically craft work. Um, and it was something that they'd never attempted before. And I fully endorse a band trying something new and trying something different. Um, and I I think futurology's fucking rubbish. But I love the fact that they, tr- they did it, you know, and loads of people love that record. So, you know, I'm... The, like i i think it's total. Uh, i think it justifies it being written because it was totally different to anything they've done before you know um i mean there's other records which are probably even worse the futurology to be honest um but yeah
0: and and the holy bible by the way
1: oh sorry shit. oh the holy Bibles. <laughs> yeah, well well i feel like i oh, said you were you're in the middle of
0: summing it up and then you did a review for georgie and you never came back <laughs>
1: oh oh the, the, it's it's a fucking masterpiece so i i sorry i felt like i kind of said it but it's just an, it's absolute, an end on a
0: review of futurology no sorry no I mean? <laughs> right
1: yeah uh this record uh, is fucking great um do you know what there's a there's a quote i don't know where the quote is from um on on my version of the 10th anniversary edition where it says it's a triumph of art over logic yeah perfect that's perfect. perfect
0: um yeah it's one of the darkest greatest Uh, i mean the manic street preachers are not a big band in anywhere apart from the uk and i guess around central europe like a really big band and they're not as big a band as they used to be and what they would go on to be after this but in terms of hollywood um who could you know the, the most interesting stories in the history of rock music the story of richie edwards and the 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 culmination of his work on this record. Uh, if you are someone who dares to look into the deepest, darkest recesses of a truly troubling mind, if you want art to be genuinely, starkly, brutally honest with you, then this record is is as heavy as any record that has ever been made by any band ever. You can chuck 45,000 early death metal records at me and i won't even flinch because i've listened to this record Mm -hmm. time and time again and it is heavier than deicide it is heavier than cannibal corpse it is heavier than any of those norwegian black metal bands this is one of the heaviest records ever made and if you don't think that you don't know what being heavy means i'm going to end this podcast Before I tell you to go over and see what happened next, and we'll talk about everything must go, patreon.com forward slash right act podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm going to end this podcast with a quote from Richie Edwards. He says, I'm not really worried what people think about me because I judge myself harsher and on more strict terms than they ever could. That's what this record is.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, Yeah, that that sums it up very well. Yeah, Mm. absolutely.
0: We're going to be talking about Everything Must Go next uh, and then probably summing up all this together. Thank you very much for listening. As I said, go to our Patreon page and that part two will be up now. But Remfrey, this has been... It's been great in tr- in trying circumstances. Always trying circumstances talking about this record, but it's been lovely not all the same.
1: It's been lovely to discuss this. I've never... Um... I've, I've i've never known anyone who's been as passionate about this album as um as as myself uh, so it's been really nice to actually sit down and talk for almost three hours about that um mm-hmm. so thank you steve it's been lovely that's all right mate it's been lovely, good. To lovely, it's, all lovely. Right. it's the wrong word to use definitely but you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> go and get the second part now we'll, we'll see you over there cheers